This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 616 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I have an incredibly important episode that you must listen from beginning to end, and you, the listener, can also be the solution of what we're going to discuss today. So many of us are sadly acutely aware that Johnny Depp has a hearing because it is televised everywhere. What is tragic is that as people watch that, there is an Alabama police officer, Ben Darby, sitting in a prison for doing exactly what he was trained to do and following his protocols to the T. Now, my guest today is his wife, Keelan, who is also a police officer in the same state. I want to preface this whole conversation with a concept that I've carried through from the beginning of this podcast, and now we are over 600 episodes. As a firefighter and a paramedic, I got to see not only the things that were ailing my profession and law enforcement and the other first responders, but also a lens looking at society, looking what kills and brings pain to the civilians that we serve. So even though we're going to focus on Ben's case and getting him released, I want to understand that I am incredibly empathetic for Jeff Parker, the gentleman who was shot in this particular case, and the path that led him to that point of crisis. This is never a black and white element. There are countries around the world that do not have gang shootings on a daily basis, that do not require their police officers to wear tactical gear because it's so dangerous on the streets, that do not have the opioid epidemic and the suicide epidemic that we have here in the US and many of the other Western countries. So when you listen to this, 
listen to Keelan tell about Ben's case because it's incredibly important and it's something that we must overturn. But also look at all the other contributing factors that created that scene in the first place. Because Ben being in prison is a tragedy and Jeff Parker being dead is a tragedy. So without further ado, I introduce to you Keelan Darby. Keelan, I want to start by saying thank you so much for literally coming off a night shift and then jumping on a Behind the Shield podcast interview. So welcome and thank you. Thank you for having me. It's it's been a ride, but I'm here for it. Absolutely. Well, I'm looking forward to, to helping share the story. Gag orders have actually been a theme in several of the interviews. I did a, a whole week on the pulse shooting, and that was local. That was my second Jew um, where I used to work. But it took years for anyone to be able to tell the story. And so it means it took years to to process some of the mental health side. It took years to take lessons learned so other people could you know figure out what worked, what didn't. Um, and obviously, there's factors in now. So, I'm, you know, honored that you chose this podcast as one of the ones that you, you know, are going to share Ben's story on. So, very first question: Where on planet Earth are we finding you right now? I'm in North Alabama. So, I would love to do, you know, usually when I do this, the the guests are both telling their story, unless it's obviously someone talking about someone posthumously. But I would love to kind of lead you through your kind of early life into policing and then also Ben's as well. So starting with you, tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. So I was born in Lake Forest, Illinois. Um, And let me see, I've got uh, a brother and a sister. I'm actually a twin. So um, I'm the younger twin, I guess. We We don't look alike. Um, we're night and day, literally. Uh, and then my brother is five years younger than us. Uh, I was raised in Arizona and then I went to college in Florida and that's where I met Ben at. We were both, uh, criminal justice majors and then we both worked for campus security. So, uh, we didn't start dating until senior year. I was very focused on school but we knew each other through classes and then working together. And then my junior year, I was uh, a supervisor on the security team for the school. So I ended up being Ben's boss. And uh, so that's a different dynamic, I guess. And then uh, we graduated May of 2015. And then I came up to visit him in Alabama. And uh, we eventually got married and all that. Uh, Ben is from Alabama, born and raised. Uh, He's an only child. His um, dad is a retired police lieutenant, so uh, he has law enforcement in his background, uh, second generation. And when I moved out, putting in, he wanted to put in for Huntsville Police Department, and I put on for a surrounding agency. And we both got accepted uh, February of 2016. We started our respective academies. So Huntsville Police Department has their own in-house academy. And then I have like a regional state academy that I attended. So we went through the academies, not the same one, but we went through the academies at the same time, uh, graduated July of 2016, and then uh, started field training. In the middle of field training, we got married that October. 
And then I believe we're cut loose the end of October, beginning of November. And then uh, just we did policing. Uh, my, my department works 12s. And at that time I was on day shift. So I worked 7A to 7P. And then Ben worked uh, second shift from 2 to 10. So we never saw each other. Uh, we maybe saw each other three total days out of the month where work was involved. So it was a lot of notes and lunch boxes and calls and texts on shift. Hey, make sure you do this. Hey, check this out. Uh, not a lot of one-on-one -on -one time just because of our shift schedule. So, um, yeah, I guess that's a little bit about us. <laughs> well, I'm going to go back and kind of pull a lot more of this. Right. So firstly, with you, you moved to a uh, city in Arizona that sadly became well-known for a wildland tragedy. So talk to me about life in Prescott um, and then, you know, what it was like through your eyes as, as one of the residents. Yeah. So um, I think I was 19 when the fire came through Prescott and one of the guys that I went to high school with was actually one of the hotshots that was killed that day. Um, I didn't know him. I knew of him because everyone knows everyone at high school, but I didn't have a friendship with, with Wade. Um, but I remember waking up and you could see the fire in the distance from our house and it's, there's mountains and everything. So it's not like it was right outside our door, but you could see it in the distance. And it was just, it was just an orange glow for such a long time. And uh, it really hit the community hard to have 19 firemen die uh, trying to put out those fires. And there's so there's fires every year out there just because of the heat and the drought and people like to put their cigarettes out and, you know, fire start. And I don't remember exactly how that fire started, but it really did hit the community hard. And, um, but we all pulled together and pulled through. I actually was in the gym about a month ago, uh, here in Alabama and, um, it's our department gym. So we, it's the police and the fire share it. And one of the firemen had on, um, a, Prescott Fire Department uh, remembrance shirt. And I went up to him and I said, hey, do you, are you from Prescott or how did you get that shirt? And he said, no, it was a fundraiser um, that I bought the shirt for to support those guys. And I said, that's really cool. I said, I'm actually from there. And he said, oh, really? And so we sparked, that sparked conversation. But um, it, it was just devastating to see all the, the woods and just the trees burned and to have all those people evacuated and thankfully we were not, uh, we were far enough away from it. But a couple years later, there was a fire and they were talking about evacuating my parents. I was, uh, in college at the time and, uh, they talked about they were possibly going to get evacuated because where my parents were was more, um, like open country land and the fire was jumping across the state highway to that area. Um, thankfully they didn't have to, and their house was okay and everything, but, um, it, it was just to, to go through that experience. Uh, not a lot of people do. And just to, it's a, it's a threat, you know, um, your house could burn down and you don't realize it until it's in your backyard, basically. Well, and it ties in so closely with, you know, what we'll talk about later, which is we both do jobs or I did, um, jobs that will kill us. 
and complacency mm-hmm. kills, you know, and yeah. I'll get to it in a bit, but I actually went back and watched the body cam footage as well. And it was, yeah, I mean, there were some very glaring things to my very, you know, um, naive eyes when it comes to law enforcement. But, you know, when faced with certain areas, you know, it, you you have to treat it as though it's going to kill you every single one then you downgrade to you know if you're wrong great i was you know i was overprotective and i think mm-hmm. you know the sad parallel is is the uh the prescott fire because i mean they they did from we can tell everything right but then you start reverse engineering well how many days were they on the fire line and you know was communication working and you know the 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 understanding of weather and you know you, it's there's so many areas that are deadly and then something happens and then people just like with that fire, then they start blaming, oh, it was the supervisor or it was, you know, mm-hmm. this police officer without taking into all these, you know, these elements that contribute to that life or death situation. Right. And sadly, I think, especially in law enforcement, you have people that don't know anything about policing and they hide behind a keyboard and they like to criticize. And I'm very careful uh, whenever I debrief my shift, I let them, I tell them we're not Monday morning quarterbacking, whatever the situation is, but we're going to learn from what happened. We're not here to criticize that officer because we weren't there and we can't, we can't reconstruct that situation hundred percent to however that officer uh, felt that day or what he, what he experienced, but we can at least make mindful decisions by looking at his video and saying, if this ever happens to me, I'm not going to do this, or I am going to do this um, and not have that negative. Well, he did this wrong and this wrong, and he should have done this uh, because you can't, you can't recreate that. No, exactly. Well, staying on your timeline for a moment. Mm -hmm. um, Firstly, did you have any law enforcement in your media or extended family yourself? No. Okay. So I know that, um, let me rephrase that. I talk about mentorship a lot. And one of the areas I've seen it work incredibly well is explorer programs. There's, there's a fire cadet program here, you know, where I live, started with one of my friends that's done incredibly well and really removed barriers to entry to the fire service. And I hear many, many of my guests, the, the police explorer program was the first step for them to enter that profession. So talk to me about what made you even decide to enter that program and then your journey into policing through that. So I had a friend or a family, my parents had friends who had a daughter who was in the Prescott Police Department Explorer Program. And they, she came over one day and she was talking to me about it. And I was like, oh, that sounds cool. Because uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, uh, you know, in high school. And uh, so I went to it once. They met, I think, on Monday nights, every Monday. And uh, so I went one night and uh, I was like, oh, this is, this is pretty cool, you know. And, uh, I think I was an explorer for a year and a half, maybe. Um, and we just learned how Prescott PD did policing and we, uh, they broke down like case law with us, policies and procedures. We could do ride-alongs with them. Uh, we, any type of community event, they had us, um, assist them with that. And, uh, they had different people come in every night, every Monday night, we would work on um, something with detectives or canine came out one night, or uh, we would go in like do PT with them just to say, you know, get into shape. If we were going to become police officers, it's a very 
physically challenging job at times. And you have to be in shape to be able to do the job to protect your life and the lives of your fellow uh, officers or the public. And um, so it was, uh, it was a good experience. So with that, um, you know, again, you're, you're a high school kid. You're not sure which way you're going to go. Um, you know, what really dragged you into that profession? The reason I ask that is some mentorship programs are great at making you decide, okay, I don't want to do this. My, my stepson did it for a while. I'm just like, okay, I don't want to do the fire service, but now I know that. Obviously, something grabbed you. So which elements were that made you at the time, you know, not a, a physically imposing young woman decide that you were going to not only walk that path, but have to physically prepare for it as well? Um, so when I went to college, I didn't want to be a police officer, um, even though I was an explorer and I know I just said all that. Um, but the more the, uh, the federal side of it, I guess, being young and, uh, naive and not understanding how everything works and you see, you know, law and order and CSI and all that stuff. It's like, Oh, I'm going to go to college and do that, you know, and then you go through the process and, realize it's not that easy to get a job like that. And so I think my junior year of college, junior and senior year, I had to do two 40-hour internships. Well, you can't get a federal internship unless you know someone, you know, really closely connected. So I um, talked with my connections at Prescott and I did, my first one was with patrol, 40 hours, uh, day and night shift, they split it up. And then the second one was um, detectives and crime scene and canine. And I had a better taste of what it was to be a police officer in those two internships than I did as an explorer. And I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. Um, I mean, and of course, like going through classes and seeing what that's like in college, that helped form that decision. Like I knew I didn't want to go into corrections. I didn't want to be stuck in a jail uh, basically stuck in a box with prisoners. I didn't want to do that. So I knew that right off the bat. Um, and basically those two internships made the path for me to know that, yeah, I want to be a police officer. Now let's just walk through Ben's path for a moment. So you mentioned that his dad was a retired police officer. So what was it that hooked him? Had he, did he talk about always wanting to be a policeman or again, was there some kind of right turn in his career path? Um, no, I think it, it, he was always either going to go into the military or go into policing. And um, that was an option for him when we were in college, we were talking and he, I think he, he was actively trying to get in with um, a ranger offer. I don't know what it's called. Um, and we were, we had been, we weren't official, like we weren't, we were new in our relationship, but we were, I don't know, I guess we weren't brand new, but we weren't together for a long time. And he, I knew that he had been talking to recruiters for that. And one day we were walking to class and I said, how did your phone call go? Cause I knew that a recruiter was going to call him that morning. And he said, uh, it went well. And I said, okay, well, did they offer you a spot? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, did you take it? And he said, no. And it was the contract. It was the contract that he wanted, like everything. And I said, well, why didn't you take it? And he said, because if I take that, then I don't know how we're going to 
how our relationship is going to go because I'm going to be gone and I love you more than taking this contract. So I said, no. And it kind of just, you know, that was a big, that was a big day for us in our relationship and just, you know, moving forward. Um, but he was always either going to be, he either wanted to go into military, go into the policing and he decided to take the law enforcement route. So I heard you on Andy Stump's podcast kind of talking about the two academies that you found yourself going through. I know they were different ones. Um, so talk to me about your experience and I'd love to just like hear the contrast, the pros and cons of each different type and you know how that set you up for success or maybe elements of failure as you came out the other side. Okay. So our department has a, we, they call it a mini academy. So it's an in-house eight to nine week academy that we go over our policy and procedure, how we do stuff at our department. And then of course you go over SIPA statutes and case law and all that with it. There's PT involved. Um, at the time that I went through, we had a strict uh, recruit program. So we PT'd every day. Uh, we ran every day. We hated it. Um, but it was good for us because it, it got us in the, in the shape that we needed to go to be in to be when we went to the academy, um, which again was a regional kind of farm, I guess you could say, because it was every different departments throughout the state. Uh, when we got to the state academy, I actually got in worse shape there than I did at our mini academy. And I remember coming home one weekend because I would be gone Sunday evening through Thursday afternoon. And uh, one Friday or Friday or Saturday, Ben and I had gone on a run. And when I left, before I left to go to the mini academy or to the state academy, I think my mile and a half time was like a 1030. And we went on a run one day and I couldn't keep up with Ben. And when I was in the mini academy, I wasn't running with him because obviously boys are faster than girls, but you know, it was, we were pretty close and he just smoked me and uh, we got done with the run and he's like, what happened? And I said, we don't run at the state. Like we run once a week and um, you don't have, you know, his benefit at his academy was he lived at home. So he was able to still eat, you know, good food and have that nutritional uh, balance where at the state Academy, it was just, we ate potatoes and pork and, you know, it's good food, but nutritionally it's not good for you if you're trying to stay in shape and have that uh, foundation. And so um, eventually I think I got my mile and a half down, down to a nine thirty nine at the state Academy. Um, but that was because I told, we went on a run during one of the sessions and I picked the guy and I was like, make me stay with you. And I just stayed with him the entire time and he was able to do it. Um, Huntsville's Academy, again, I didn't go through it, but go, just based off of what Ben and I talked about, they got smoked twice a day. Uh, they started off with PT and they ended with PT. And uh, they would find a weakness that you had physically and then they would drill you on it. So if you were bad at push-ups, uh, the whole class did push-ups until you couldn't do them anymore. And then they would make that person stand and watch the rest of the class do more push-ups because that was their weakness. And because they were weak in that situation, the other people had to pay, you know, just kind of like when you're on the street, if you're not prepared to do your job, your other teammates are going to suffer because you aren't 
squared away enough to handle your own stuff. And uh, so they kind of beat that into their heads. They ran all the time. Um, it sounded like from what Ben and I had talked about, they did a lot of CrossFit workouts. So those can be challenging. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess that was our academy experience. It was just not that I had a bad academy experience physically, but I feel like he might have been more prepared physically uh, once he hit the street. And now I know that comes down to your drive and your discipline to stay in shape. Um, and it's sad, you know, you see people, there's a lot of overweight police officers. There's a lot of overweight people in, in general, but when it comes to a job where your life is on the line every day and you can't handle yourself or you can't see over your uh, gun belt, that's a problem, you know? Um, thankfully I'm disciplined enough to stay active and go to the gym and, you know, run or do whatever. Um, cause I realized that that's, that's something that could be used against me on the street, you know, as a female, we're not as strong as men are, but there's certain things that we can do to help mitigate that. And I feel like that's one of them. No, absolutely. It's something I talk about a lot on here. And I think that the conversation is always a, a double-edged sword and normally you hear, Oh, hold on. Absolutely. And that's something I talk about a lot. Um, the conversation is a double-edged sword, but normally you hear one or the other spoken about, you know, or either your department needs to provide you everything for me to then work out or conversely, what normally happens is you're at the mercy of your own motivation and, you know, you have to pay for your own gym membership and, you know, train outside, working hours and all that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. When a, you do a job, as you said before, that's trying to kill you, you know, you want to be the best version of yourself. And like you said, man, woman, whatever. I mean, there's, 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 you know, shapes and sizes that have pros and cons from all the different areas. I mean, you know, if you're a breacher, you probably want to be a big, strong person. And if you're, you know, someone's going to be hanging off a building on the end of a rope, they probably want to be a little bit smaller. Um, but yeah, but the, the physicality comes into it and it's so important. And it's something in the fire service, very few departments even have a, an annual fitness standard, like a true one that we're actually held to. But then you look at lifeguarding and, you know, the SEALs, as Andy was saying, you know, they, they have that. And outside of that, you know, off the operational side, there may be some people that are deconditioned, but anyone who's on the front line is held to that standard every year. And if you can't reach it anymore, then you're taken out. Yeah. And uh, that's that's something like I'm on our SWAT team <clears throat> at our department and the PT test is straight across the board. There's no leniency for females. And I had to work uh, part of our SWAT test is you have to bench, bench press at least your body weight. And for a female, that's probably one of the hardest things. And it took me a year and a half to reach that. And then when I went to go to my tryout, I actually benched um, 11 or 12 pounds more than my body weight. So that was, you know, I put in that time in that, that preparation to make sure, because I didn't want to show it to the test in front of all these guys and then fail. And it's like, Oh, well, she's a girl or, you know, cause you're, I got that, you know, I made the team cause I'm a girl or I slept with someone or whatever, which didn't happen. I made it off my own merit, but, um, unfortunately as females, you already have, I think you already have something against you because you're weaker or because you're a girl, you know, and we have, to, I feel like we have to fight harder to make, a position in the department, um, 
or to be taken seriously, especially in, and on the street too, because people don't take, you know, uh, the first, uh, the first continuum is officer presence. You know, if you look bad and you look disheveled and that you don't know how to take care of yourself, the public's not going to take you seriously. And that I think translates over to your coworkers. If you're not squared away, you know, people, can I really rely on you to help me when I'm in a life or death situation? Or if I need help pushing a vehicle or doing whatever, can I rely on you to help me do that? No, absolutely. And I've had that, you know, redefined so much in, in the CrossFit space and jujitsu. I mean, so many areas where, you know, it's, it's, whether you can or whether you can't is your only prejudice, you know. And yes, there is some sports science. If I'm not mistaken, lower body is almost one-to-one strength, men and women. But upper body, I think just because of our anatomy, is like 0.75 to 1, I believe. So, yeah, the bench would be somewhere where it would be a little skewed. I'm not known for my bench, so I'm probably leaning more towards the female numbers anyway. <laughs> but, um, but yes, but I mean, it's when you said about the training, I had to. I'm a six-foot tall guy, but I'm slim built and I was running and you know, doing weights and all this stuff through my entire academy, getting there early, running stairs, dragging dummies, because no one comes out of the womb ready to be a policeman or a firefighter. It's just not the right. way it works. So we all have to work. Maybe some lose weight, maybe some work on mobility, maybe some, you know, and then obviously there's the skills, but the only ones that think they already have it in, in place are the arrogant ones that usually wash out of the academy in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with that, just before we kind of go into to the kind of uh, career journey itself, what about um, the uh, DTAC element? So the the kind of hands-on training that you guys had and the weapons training. So uh, the state requires you to go, I think it's, you have a total in the academy, you have 520 hours through your academy training currently. I don't know if it was that high when we went through six years ago, but um, you go through like a red man. So they teach you different techniques on how to take people down and how to take people into custody. And then um, at the end of the week, at least in Huntsville, at the end of the week, you had like your uh, test. And um, I don't want to give away what Huntsville does, but it's very diff- it was very different than what we went through, um, just based off talking to Ben. And they, they put you in that situation where you were in, you were in fear for your life. Um, and where we still go through a red band, but it's not that Huntsville's wasn't controlled, um, you know, or safe or anything like that, but I feel like theirs was just more, um, physical. And I don't know if that comes down to resources or what, because their department is, is significantly larger than mine, but, uh, you go through like a red man. So that's hands-on, uh, and where I'm from, we went through, um, uh, a week of training firearms. So we were at the range for a week and they would, uh, go one-on-one with you to figure out what, where your deficiency was, where you're having an issue with shooting a weapon. Um, we have what is called SSGT. It's a uh, defense tactics. Um, we went through, in my department, we went through that for about a, once a week for several weeks through the, uh, through the uh, training. And then we went through the state academy. It was once a week for the entire uh, academy. Um, so that goes down to like handcuffing, taking control of suspects hands, uh, takedowns if you have to weapon retention. Um, if someone takes your gun, how do you, how do you deal with that? Um, and then Huntsville, I believe went through the same since it's state mandated. 
And then after you graduated, were you guys shooting together, training together, pursuing uh, weapons courses, that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. So we did that prior to um, we would go to the range together and shoot um, and just do different drills. And then in February, not February, uh, October of 17, we went through a FBI police survival school. It was a three-day class on um, how to survive, you know, officer safety with policing and um, using a weapon. And uh, it was a great class. Uh, it was small. The the instructor, you know, you go through the class and everyone says where they're from. And after we introduced ourselves, he said, oh, uh, I've never had a husband-wife combo in a class. I hope we don't have a domestic, you know, and everyone laughed. But um, it was a good, good training. Uh, and then some of that training carried over, obviously it carried over into our careers and then it carried over uh, into Ben's career um, April of 2018. So. Well, I heard you tell a story as well about one of the people that trained Ben that himself had been in a shoot and they ended up um, being injured themselves. So I think it's important to tell them that story before we kind of get into it. Sure. So I don't know exactly when it happened, but it was before uh, Ben was a police officer. Um, Huntsville Police Department officers had a call of a domestic and when they got there, I think the guy, the suspect was standing outside with two long guns pointed at the ground. And um, the Huntsville officer, he got to the scene and he is a SWAT, SWAT operator. So he had that extra training that SWAT members go through. And uh, he had his rifle out and he had it trained on the individual. And thinking when, as soon as I see shoulder movement, He's maybe presenting a gun to me, you know, and that's justified force. And so he's trained on the guy and the individual is able to flick his wrist, which is a small, small movement. So it's not an overt action that you're going to see, uh, which so many people criticize nowadays. And it has come into criticism with Ben's case. Um, the guy was able to flick his wrist and get a shot off and Jason got hit shot in the face. Uh, thankfully it was with just birdshot and he survived that, but he uh, was shot in the face because he waited um, for that threat to present himself, but he wasn't able to recognize that small flick of the wrist. And um, so when Ben was in the Academy in 2016, that was Jason's first year as a training instructor, to my knowledge, uh, at Huntsville and he was teaching the class on action versus reaction, which basically if my action is going to come before you can react to it. So if I have a gun to my head or wherever it is, I know when I'm going to point it at you, you don't. So I have the benefit of knowing that and you're going to, I'm going to catch you off guard. So if you tell me when I'm going to shoot you, go ahead and tell me bam, you're dead. You can't get it. You're not, you're not going to beat that. And that's proven scientifically. You're not going to beat the actor by reacting to what their action is. And so Jason had gone through his incident uh, in a lot more detail than I know to his, to Ben's class and uh, taught them, you know, action is faster than reaction. And you have to, you can't, you have to be able to react quickly, but also realize you're not going to be able to react as fast enough as the actor. And uh, then had that training from Jason. And then two years later, approximately two years later, you know, he had his incident and 
Um, he used that training, that training and the training we had through the FBI survival school, because we had a very similar incident to what Ben had faced that day um, as a scenario. And the, at the end of that scenario, um, everyone had shot the suspect during that scenario. And we got done and debriefed it and we're told, yes, this is a shoot. This is a good shoot, you know? And so going off of that, and going off of Jason's teaching to the academy that day, and then just several other things that Ben had experienced uh, in the academy, and then in his short career, uh, he he recognized the threat that was in front of his life and the other officers' lives, and uh, he acted upon it. When I heard you tell you know that story of um, Jason, it reminded me I had a, a guy who was actually an armed policeman in London. So it's obviously a very unique, um, rare team. And he was almost labeled, I forget the term they use now, but can imagine like a, a Rambo type character by all our tabloids. Um, and when Tony told each of the stories, you know, you're like, well, yeah, I, you know, as, a, as a layman, I understand why you shot here. I understand why you shot here. The last one, it was a car they chased who just picked a bunch of weapons up in England, which is, you know, very different than going to Gander Mountain in America. <laughs> you know what I mean? You don't see weapons around in England. So, and the guy in the backseat, I forget exactly how it went, but he reached and you know, he had a, a like a, a jacket over him. So he made a motion that looked like he was turning a barrel. Tony shot him at that moment. He didn't have a gun in his hand. But again, it goes back to the point of, of the threat. And I can name, you know, Brandon Coates, Jonathan Pine, Deborah Clayton. These are all local police officers that were killed. Because they, you know, Brandon especially was found dead with a taser in his hand. So they chose that less lethal force. Deborah was, was, um, ambushed, but, um, you know, and, and, and they lost. So they don't get to testify. They don't get to go into court and tell their story or anything like that. So this is the part of the equation that kills me is, you know, people think like the movies, oh, why didn't you, and you hear it from politicians, oh, why didn't you shoot him in the leg? Like, have you ever been to any of these trainings? Even with the knife, watch some of these knife versus gun demos and someone's 10 foot away and the knife wins because as you said, action beats reaction. Right. And I I love seeing the way they'll have a non-police come in and go through a controlled uh, scenario. And these people are always so quick to, well, why did you shoot? It wasn't justified, blah, blah, blah. And then they go, um, I watched one, it was a news news member the, they gave him a simunition gun and the scenario was he was a bad guy and he was a bigger guy and he was just being irate and loud walking towards the individual and the, the news, the news member shot him. He had no weapon. And it's like, you're, if that was real life, you're, you just murdered someone. Like you can't shoot someone because they're coming towards you and they're being irate and loud and they have no weapon in their hand. That's, is that could that potentially be a scary situation? Yeah, depending on your background, but you can't shoot someone for being upset. And um, police officers go through career-specific training to deal with these situations, and by doing so, they have the knowledge to handle that situation. Um, and I think that people are just so quick to judge and hide behind a keyboard because that's the America that we live in today or just the world. Um, They're so quick to point out what they think is wrong. And like I said, you can't recreate a hundred percent, whatever that situation is. You can try, uh, but you're not going to be able to 
you know, you have that sixth sense as an officer um, where the hairs on the back of your neck stand up or something just doesn't seem right. And then something happens and either you have to use force or the guy takes off running or what have you. Um, and I just, people just don't get it. They don't understand. Well, I think a classic example is Sully, you know, the, the miracle on the Hudson who landed the, yes. the plane in New York. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we all think of the story ended. Well, he saved the people and everyone applauded him. Well, no, as the, the film told, there was a court case and they tried to throw him under the bus after that. And all these computer generated models said, Oh, he would have made it to the airport to, to, you know, refuel or to, you know, to, to the airport, whatever the situation was. And then when they actually finally acknowledged the human element, they were like, no. He wouldn't have made it, so he made the right choice. But, you know, again, someone who we thought that was it was left as a hero and that was the end of the story. It wasn't the case at all. And there's always these these forces. There's always someone there that's trying to pull people down. I don't understand why, and we'll get into Ben's case. But, you know, again, I get the Derek Chauvin cases, and I think everyone wearing a badge is behind that being resolved because that's the, the truly rotten apple in the uniform. So I've had people on here, para, um, a parent of a child who was killed because the paramedic and you know doctors and nurses miss things, and that you know that man lost his son. You know, so it's important that we tell those stories, but it's also important that we stand up and protect our men and women when they're not only doing their job but going above and beyond within their job. <laughs> Uh, you know, and I don't know, I don't know what it's going to take um, for the public to realize, like, we do go through training, and we do go through scenarios. Do we make the, the correct decision 100% of the time? No, because we're human. You know, doctors, they don't make the right decision every time. You know, like you said, paramedics don't make uh, the right decision. Lawyers and bankers and teachers don't either. But who's the ones that are wearing a body camera? The police. Um, you know, you look at how many medical malpractice lawsuits there are. Why aren't doctors wearing cameras? Or why aren't there cameras in the uh, the surgery rooms? There's just that mistrust. And until that can get, until the tide can change on that, um, I think law enforcement has an uphill battle. I think in the past few years, the, pend- the pendulum is swinging back towards law enforcement, but, you know, it's going to take time. And it's all it's going to take is one bad Derek Chauvin incident to happen and the pendulum's going to swing right back to the other side. Mm-hmm. Now with the, the, say the, you know, year, two years leading up to this, politically, what was going on in your area? I mean, obviously had this happened in 2020, there'd be a very blatant, you know, lens into anti-police sentiment, you know, unjustified, but, you know, very real at the time. Um, were there any things locally that were building tension and pressurizing a career politician into making bad choices? I don't remember exactly. So, uh, Ben's department is in Madison County. Um, my department is in Morgan County. So we're bordering each other, but it's obviously different politics. Um, so I'm not very attuned to what happens in Madison. I mean, I am now because it directly affects my life. But um, at the time, I don't think there was anything, there was any political pressure. Um, Alabama is very um, pro-police uh, Republican. So that's not, that right there is not an issue. Um, officers can go out. I mean, I know nationwide, but especially in North Alabama and people donate, uh, 
trays of food or, hey, we have tickets to a concert we want to give to the police or um, you're in line at a restaurant and or you're at a restaurant and your bill gets paid. Um, people are very pro-police in our area. So I don't believe there was anything uh, going on negatively that would have affected law enforcement at that time in 2018. So with with Ben's actual time on the job, he does the uh, F2, uh, FTO training, is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's what, about 18 months? So in, in that time, um, you know, is he exposed to certain events that were similar? I mean, what was his journey up to that point in the role that he was in? Yeah. So in Huntsville, when you're a rookie on training, when you're still in FTO, you're considered an echo unit. Um, so when he was an echo unit, he answered a call for a guy who was suicidal. And um, just like everyone's trained, you surround the house and call the person out. You don't go into that house. And so um, they did that on that call. And the guy was able to come out of the house and officers were able to um, make contact with him and get him the medical treatment that he needed. So uh, based off of uh, scenarios that he went through the academy. And then that one, I know that specific uh, situation while he was an echo unit, and I'm sure some other ones that I just don't know of. Um, he did have experience with suicidal subjects where you call them out of their house. You did not go into their house because I don't know what's in your house. You know, I don't, I don't know the layout. I don't know if you have booby traps or where you have guns or knives or whatever. Um, so to have you come outside in an open area is going to work better for my safety and for the, and for your safety, because I can see you and you can see me. And if you have a weapon, then I can take cover and, and react accordingly. Um, I can't do that if I come into your house because I don't know what I'm walking into. So Ben did have experience. Um, one incident for sure that I know of uh, dealing with a suicidal subject where they had called them out of the house um, which, which went along with their training. Uh, you know, we're not trained to go into your house if you're suicidal, uh, because we don't know what, what's going on in there. So, yeah, I mean, I can think of a lot of the mental health calls and, you know, even some of the near misses, if we're being honest, you know, that as a firefighter, as a paramedic that, that we found ourselves in, not, not always, you know, a blatant disregard or lack of training, but just as you said, I mean, there's that margin of error. And sometimes there's a, there's a perfect storm of circumstances that put you in a really shitty place that you shouldn't be in. Um, so with that being said, as you touched on, if there's a, a suicidal call, I mean, what I found, you know, in a lot of a lot of these cases is it's one of two things. It's either a cry for help, and, and hopefully, you know, as you said, putting uh, putting yourself in a in a warm zone away from the danger, and be able to negotiate with the person. Hopefully, that will take them to the help that they need and be able to de-escalate. The other side usually is your call to a body. You know, actually, I just passed an incident on the freeway on the way home to do this interview, and I don't know if I read it right, but it looks like maybe someone jumped in front of a, a truck on a freeway, you know, so, so usually the people that want to do it, they just do it. You know, there's no kind of, you know, um, drama around it as it were. So talk to me about April 3rd, cause it sounded even from the dispatch, you know, initiation from the dispatch almost that it was a very, um, unusual, um, what's would be the right word? Um, there was an element of definitely an element of danger that you don't normally get from the traditional suicidal call. So uh, April 3rd, 2018, Ben was on duty for Huntsville Police Department working out of the West Precinct. Uh, 
second shift. And he had just cleared from a call where um, he had to go and download his body camera video, video from that footage, from that incident. And so he was on his way to headquarters to download his stuff. And it was second shift is busy. You're running. You just run, call the call because it's just so busy. And uh, from what I from what I understand, uh, all the available units were tied up on different calls throughout the city on the west side. And so the dispatcher made a broadcast that she needed units to clear, to expedite and clear for a uh, holding call. And so um, two officers were on a traffic stop and they were able to clear Officer Piggies and Officer Pe- Beckles. And uh, so they got on the radio and they answered dispatch and, uh, you know, said, give us the call. And the dispatcher said she gave out the address and said uh, he stated that he has his front door open and he's fixing to blow his brains out. And uh, so the officers went in route and Officer Beckles got on the radio and when you work with someone, you can tell by their voice inflection, especially on the radio, you know, if, if they're okay, or if they may see, may f- sound like something's just not right. Um, and you can tell that in everyday conversation, just talking to whoever, you, whoever it is the conversations with, you can tell by their voice if something's wrong. And when Beckles got on the radio, he asked, is there any avail- any other available units to respond? And when Ben heard that, he heard that offsetting in his voice and he keyed up and he said, uh, disregard, I'll be en route to this call. You know, my body body camera can wait. I I can go help these officers. So he uh, turned around and by the time that Ben got there, um, he got there third. But uh, he pulled in and he did the tactical you know, three door approach. You were taught to uh, park several houses away. You don't want to park right in front of the house because then they know you lose your element of surprise. And so he did that. And um, based off of the call notes, Ben recognized it being a suicidal subject who already made the the comment that he was he was going to blow his brains out. Um, ben grabbed his shotgun, thinking based off of his past experience and training that they were going to surround and call surround out surround the house and call the guy out. So he grabs his shotgun. And, uh, when he went to go get out of his car, he turned his car off. And so that disabled the locking feature, uh, to get the shotgun out of the rack. So he had to mess with that for a few, a few seconds to get his shotgun out. And, uh, he loaded a slug into the, into the barrel thinking because I'm on a perimeter, a slug is going to do better if I have to take a shot than buckshot because buckshot would spread. And then you could uh, harm, you know, people who they're standing around outside being nosy because people are. And uh, so he put a slug in there, thinking it would be a more direct uh, impact if he had to take a shot. And as he's approaching the house, he doesn't see the other two officers. So he just like, just like any officer, if you hear a guy with a gun call come out or a suicidal person with a gun or what have you, and you get there and you don't see the officers, you're going to think, well, what happened? Are they something's gone wrong? Something's gone wrong. Right. And so, um, Ben runs up there 
and he sees Officer Pegues inside the house um, in between. She had like the wall behind her back and then she had a couch in front of her and she was talking to the right of her or to the right of Ben, I'm sorry. And then Officer Beckles was kind of hanging out on the front porch stoop um, in the fatal funnel in that doorway. And he gets up there and he sees that both of them have their guns out, but they're down, pointed at the ground against their legs. So they're not ready to engage if a threat presented itself. And um, so Ben sees all that, recognizing that they're not utilizing sound uh, officer safety tactics with cover and concealment, uh, which cover... I'll break it down really quick for your listeners who don't know. Cover is something that would stop a, a, a bullet. Uh, so like a brick wall. Um, concealment would uh, hide you temporarily. Uh, so Officer Pegues was standing behind a couch. So the bottom half of her body was concealed. You know, you can't see her from her waist down, but you know that she's there because you can see from her waist up behind the couch. And a couch isn't going to stop around. Um it's just not going to. So it, it, it's improper. She was using improper tactics there. And then Beckles was standing, you know, in the doorway. So he had, I think the house had brick fascia on it. So he had that uh, limited uh, cover there. And Ben got up there and saw that. And he said, point your gun at him. He can shoot you. And um, Officer Pegues, you after looking at all the body camera, you can see her uh, take her gun and point it up at him. And she does it with one hand, just like that. And instead of taking a command grip, you know, command show towards that individual. And she does that. And then she looks, you can see her take her gun off of Mr. Parker and turn and shift her body weight completely. So her body camera is focused on the guy and then you see her shift. So it's complete. You can still see Parker in the, in the frame, but she's not squared up with him. And he, she says, no, I don't think he's going to do it or something to that uh, verbiage. And then when Bennett got there, you know, I think they only had said it four times, which is too many, but they told them, you know, drop the gun, drop the gun. And so when Ben got there and was seeing everything play out and understanding that they were, within 21 feet of a man who had a gun to his head, regardless of where the guns pointed, you know, action versus reaction as the actor, I know if I'm going to point at you and if I'm going to pull the trigger, you as the reactor don't know that. And so uh, Ben stepped into the house and raised his shotgun and started giving Parker commands. He said, Hey, drop the gun. And Parker said, no, I'm not going to do it. And Ben said, I'm not going to tell you again, drop the gun. And Parker, again, the gun was to his head. Okay. And Parker, as he was shrugging his shoulders, his wrist moved forward. And just that little movement, uh, Ben took that as a threat and uh, he acted upon it. Um, and so he, uh, he, he made the shot. He went up and cleared up to where Parker was, put him in handcuffs, removed the weapon to the side, and he got over the radio, shots fired, and all that. Um, 
unbeknownst to Ben, there was another, the Parker's fiance was in the house and Ben didn't know that because that was never relayed to him or anyone over the radio. And so you can see the body camera footage. The female starts to come downstairs and she's in a nightgown or pajamas, obviously not a threat. She has nothing or her hands are open and officer Pegues turns around and starts yelling at her, show me your hands, show me your hands. And is literally throwing her gun. You know, she takes that command presence, that command grip and is basically throwing her, her gun in this lady's face because she's a threat because she has no gun and is in her pajamas. But the guy that was 21 feet, 21 feet in front of her with a, with a wheel, with a weapon was not a threat and she didn't have her gun pointed at him. So that in and of itself is an issue. Um, officer safety wise, but so uh, Ben gets taken out. Uh, everyone from the department, you know, shows up supervisors, other officers, and uh, Ben gets taken to the hospital to get a drug test and a P test to make sure that he's not intoxicated or there's nothing in his system. And I was on duty that day working and it was close to me getting off shift. And he called me and he said, Hey, if you hear anything, just know that I'm okay. And I was like, okay. And I was on my way to a call and I said, well, what's going on? He said, I can't talk about it. Just know that I'm okay. And I said, well, did you wreck your car again? Cause he had done that as an echo unit. And when you wreck a car, you have to go get a drug test and a P test to make sure you're not intoxicated. And I laughed cause I thought it was funny. And he said, no, I didn't wreck my car. And he said, he said, I've got to go. Just know that I'm okay. I love you. I said, okay. Love you too. You know, we got off the phone and I'm driving to my call. And then it hit me. He just was involved in a shooting. Cause why else would you go to the hospital if you didn't wreck your car? Um, and he said that he was okay. So I knew he wasn't injured. Why else would you go? So I answered my call. I think it was an alarm call at a, at a local business the cleaning crew set the alarm off. And uh, I cleared from that. I called my supervisor and I was like, Hey, I just had a family emergency happen. I need to go home. And it was, like I said, it was near the end of shift. I think we had maybe an hour and a half, two hours left. And he's like, okay. He said, uh, you know, go ahead and go home. And if you need anything, let me know. And it was my third, we worked three twelve, So it was my third day of work. So I had the next three days off. So that worked out. That worked out well uh, with, Ben situation. So Ben goes to the hospital, goes through all the tests, and then um, he gets, he has like an informal interview with major crimes. And um, I, I don't remember if IA was present or not, but he had an informal interview with them. And I, you know, I went home and I just waited for him to come home. And he came home and I could tell just by visibly, you know, looking at him, he had a rough day, obviously. Um, and he could tell he was tired. And I said, you know, are you okay? And he said, yeah, I'm okay. And I said, do you want to talk about it? And he was like, no, not really. And I don't remember the exact, you know, conversation we had, but we, I established that he, he was indeed in a shooting. And so, um, we went to bed that night and he, he and I both had the next couple of days off. And then he, uh, went in, I think it was two or three days later. And he did his interviews with like his, his real interviews with major crimes and internal affairs. 
and uh, he had to go see us, uh, a psych doctor after that and to make sure that he was cleared to return to duty, um, like a physical fitness or whatever. And um, during the interview with major crimes, he, you know, he told them what happened and they got done and the detective uh, um, off off the recording, obviously they, they left the recording room and he looked at Ben and he said, you did exactly what you're supposed to do. Don't let anyone critique you on that. You know, you did what you, you did what you had to do and you did what you needed to do to come home that day. And so, um, that was all, you know, between April 3rd was the shooting. And then April 6th, I think was the interviews and everything. Um, April 17th or 18th, they have, um, they held an incident review board. So it basically a Huntsville Police Department that's members of Huntsville Police Department um, and the district attorney's office and then a couple other people, I think from like city legal and things like that. And they break down the incident to make sure that policy and procedure were followed. No state laws were broken, no city ordinances or anything like that, just to make sure that whatever the incident is, was clear. And so, um, all three officers went in there and met before all these people and told them their version of what happened that day. And the, uh, the panel. So all those, the people that were present were permitted to ask questions if they had a question concerning any of the testimony that anyone gave. And, um, at the end of it, no one had any questions. Uh, the, the officers went in there and they said, they said their piece and there was no questions to be asked. And uh, they came back and they said the, uh, the incident was in policy and it was, uh, it followed policy procedure training, state local law, you know, it was a good, it was a good shoot and the officers were cleared. So they were cleared to go back to return to normal duties on the road. So Ben went back to the road, I think April 23rd, 2018. And uh, went back to work in second shift, you know, answering calls for service and doing his thing as a responsible police officer. Just to jump in one second, I want to make sure I don't miss this. This is a part that you never hear discussed. Ben was forced to take a life. Mm-hmm. Something that he didn't dream of, I'm sure, when he was in police academy. Oh, one day I'm going to get to to shoot someone in you know, in the chest, in the face, whatever. Yeah. That's not what our police officers do. Even when there's the the racial story being told, there's a much easier way of being a racist. Go join the Klan or something like that to go through and become a police officer, supposedly for an opportunity to kill a minority one day, is right. such a bogus argument. You know, now yeah. are there like I said, some bad people that make bad decisions. Wearing the uniform, absolutely. But so going back to Ben, the human being, for a moment, mentally, how did that affect him having having to make that decision? Um, so, you know, obviously he came home that night, and you could I could tell just by how he was acting and how he looked, it affected him. Um, and it would anyone, you know, you just took someone's life, and he didn't want to have to do that. You know, he didn't wake up that day or any day and, you know, I'm going to go to work today and kill someone that never went through his head. And that's not any uh, police officer's mindset going into the job They They put their vest on every day to go protect and serve the public and of their community and then make sure bad guys go to jail because that's where they need to go. And 
Um, I remember he didn't sleep well uh, following the shooting. Um, he would wake up in sweats, you know, and I would, I would feel him wake up or whatever. So I would wake up and, you know, Hey, are you okay? Do you need, are you, what do you need? And he would just say, no, I'm fine. He'd go, you know, get a glass of water. Or he'd get up for a little bit and then he'd come back to bed. And, um, we, after the, after the incident, the, the, I think he got, like I said, two or three days off. And then I was of course off. Um, we went and just went hiking, you know, try to just get away, um, detach from, from our, from his current situation of having to take a life and just go out and go on a nice hike, you know, and just spend that time together. And, uh, it, it definitely affected him. Um, he would wake up from having bad dreams, you know, or just having the dreams reoccurring of him taking the action he had to and actually, um, shooting Mr. Parker. Um, it's not something that he wanted to do. He ever, it's not something that he ever wanted to do to anyone, but the situation forced his hand. And it, it comes back to the lessons that we all learned in kindergarten, follow directions. You know, um, if you follow directions, everything's going to work out. And unfortunately, Mr. Parker couldn't follow directions that day and Ben's, Ben's hand was forced. Well, and that's the other side of the conversation that you also don't hear is how did Jeff Parker get to the point where at that age, he was a white supremacist. He had anti-police sentiment. You know, he had all these things. Both Ben and you and me and Jeff Parker were once kindergartners, finding joy and chasing a ball and reading ABC books. So, you know, what is it that we in society do that creates so much danger on the streets that makes our police officers have to make those decisions as well? And that's another thing. It's heartbreaking because a human being is dead now. But at that moment, the the decision was taken away. You know, mm -hmm. the decision had to be made. And that's that's the other thing. It's, you know, where's the conversation on why? And I talk about these countries all the time, Iceland, Norway, Finland, you know, why do they not have these shootings every single day and gang slayings in their streets and, you know, homelessness and, and, and addiction at every corner? Yet we do here. You know, and in Alabama, obviously, you know, the opiate crisis is pretty bad in your yeah. area as well. You know, the, this is the other side of the story. It's not fair to put all that on the shoulders of a police officer and a firefighter and a paramedic to solve the world's problems. Right. And, and we put them in this situation. I'm sorry, just we put them in this situation. And then, you know, whether we make the wrong decision, right decision or a gray area decision, now you become the scapegoat as well. We're not police officers are not they're police officers. They're not to the public, they're not parents and doctors and mental health physicians and uh, mechanics and uh, financial advisors, what have you. That's not in our job description, but we do it anyway because cops are kind-hearted and they care about the public that they serve. Um, but so they go above and beyond and help a citizen with that and try to help them and then they get criticized because, well, you're not a doctor or you're not this or you're not that. And it's like, then if we don't, it's you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, if you do it, you know, and it, it all worked out, you're praised for it. But when it doesn't work out, work out for you, you're taken to the woodshed. And that's what happened with Ben, I believe. Yeah. And I think that's the other thing is then you have 
departments that don't offer a high level of training. Then you have departments that do not fight mandates and, you know, or, or don't staff properly. So now you and me are told you can't go home. Now, now you got to do another shift and you're overworked and you're sleep deprived and you have to make those life and death decisions, not even with a normal brain. Now you're behind the eight ball having right. to make those decisions with a completely, you know, sleep deprived, brain fog filled mind that the average person wouldn't be able to do, you know, after a solid eight hour sleep. Right. Yeah. Um, and now working night shift, um, I'm experiencing that, you know, you get three thirty, three thirty, four o'clock rolls around and it's hard to stay up. You know, I get out and I'll, I'll go to a, a parking lot and I'll walk around just to keep my, just to keep moving and to stay awake. And, um, that, you know, if you don't have good sleep and you don't have uh, good nutrition and just a good start to your shift every day or start to your day, a start to your day before you go to shift, if you don't have that foundation and you're a slouch and you're eating, you know, cheeseburgers and which there's nothing wrong with that, but if that's all your diet consists of and you're, you're getting your uh, exercise by changing the channel on the TV remote you're not setting yourself up. And then when you get into a situation where you may have to use force, whether it be soft hands, hard hands, taser, uh, you know, other less lethal or deadly force, you're behind the ball. Yeah, absolutely. And again, we talk about, you know, the two sides of the the sword. I mean, it's the environment, you know, and and the ownership, of course, you and I, I mean, I was at jujitsu, I'm still wearing my shirt now before we did this, you know, and, and I'm not, in a profession that needs me to be good at jujitsu, but I think there's a sheepdog in the community. It's also important, but it's also the environment. And I just came back from a cruise and, and it's just heartbreaking seeing the men and women and children around us that are dying slowly from obesity and hypertension and diabetes and all these things. And you can't tell me that every one of them has no ownership. So it's the environment we put them in, in as well, you know. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to ask our responders to operate at this level, you know, we need to give them the highest level of training. We need to give them the rest and recovery that they need as well, you know, and then not throw them out, you know, throw them under the bus when something happens and you've not given the tools to, to succeed. Yeah, like uh, this past week I had um, my last day off. I had to go to training and, you know, working night shift that, that screws with your your off schedule because you know, on a, on a off on my last off day, there's a certain, I don't follow that schedule as I would my first off day, my second off day, because it's leading into shift and I spend it at training and then go to work for three nights immediately after that. And, you know, it's small things like that, that can, that can hurt you. Absolutely. You know, um, I'm all for training and I'm all for good training, but there's gotta be a way to work it around where you're not, potentially hurting the officer if they work night shift um, by going to this training, but then it's going to fail them when they go to shift because they're sleep deprived or whatever, whatever the case is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, going back to, to Ben's journey then. So in his mind, he's obviously dealing with having to take a life, but at least there's that upside of thinking that he's been cleared of any you know wrongdoings as it were so walk me through that he goes back to to the streets again yeah so he goes back to the street and from the get-go uh the city of huntsville uh huntsville police department chief chief mcmurray who's now retired um the city uh city council i think i just said that uh the mayor everyone supported ben in his decision to use force that day and they made a public and they all made public statements about that 
um, the chief and the mayor both said, you know, Ben Darby followed his training and he is not a murderer. And so he goes back to the road end of April, by the end of May, Ben gets pulled in and sits down with the chief and command staff. And he's advised that the DA is seeking to indict you for murder. And they said, well, so he called me and he's like, Hey, this, this is just, this is happening apparently. And I said, okay, I said, well, we'll, we'll deal with it, you know, as, as it rolls out. And so that was in May. Uh, then July, end of July, I believe they had a grand jury uh, meeting. So those are, those are secret from the public. They're not publicized, you know, Hey, we're having a grand jury about this case. Um, and that's, I think, to protect the victims and the defendant in that. But they had a secret grand jury. And so members of Huntsville Police Department who trained Ben went to that to testify as to his training and why he did what he did that day. And the just the whole situation was presented to the grand jury. And from what I heard, the grand jury was held over an extra day and a half um, once the prosecutor got their time with them. And what people don't understand, and I think it needs to be made known, is you can indict a ham sandwich and it's going to go to trial. Like just because you get a grand jury indictment doesn't mean, it doesn't mean a whole lot. It's very easy to get a grand jury indictment. And so um, we were notified at the beginning of August, I think it was August 3rd or August 2nd, he, uh, they indicted him for the charge of murder. So in Alabama, murder is very simply defined. There's not murder one, two, and three, like there are in other states. It's just person A uh, kills person B through this action. And then like you have self-defense claims and all that that go with that, but just the, the physical murder statute is very simple. And so um, Ben called me and he said, hey, meet me at mom and dad's, they're indicting me. We have to go in and get, I have to go get processed and all that. So we, I meet up with him. We go to Huntsville and he turns himself in, gets booked, formally booked in into Madison County Jail. And we're able to bond him out on $20,000 bond. And uh, we came home and we're like, all right, this is, this is really happening. You know, they're, they're trying to charge you for murder for, when, for something that you didn't do because it's not, it's not murder. And so he, um, he went back to work. He was put on administrative leave, I think, or administrative duty and was reassigned to work in accreditation. So he was looking at all the policies and the procedures and uh, the required training that the officers were supposed to um, attend and have and make sure that just basically like a check and balance to make sure that everything was going correctly in the department. And so he was there from the time he got indicted until the time he resigned. And in 2019, we had a qualified immunity hearing for Ben. And so um, it was the judge, uh, Ben, his legal team, and then uh, he had some witnesses come uh, and he had a couple of expert witnesses and people associated with the case and his training. And then the DA's office was there, obviously. And then they had called um, Officer Pegues, Officer Beckles, and Detective Vogel to testify against Ben. And so um, 
they went, we had the hearing, it was all an all day long ordeal. And, um, I walked out of that and I was like, surely they're going to give it to him. Like the, 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 the prosecutor or the, the prosecutor and their witnesses, they, they did not prove that he wasn't qualified. And so, um, we get done with the hearing and the judge says, well, there's other things that I have going on with other cases. So it's going to take me a couple of days to make this decision, but I'll have it for you within the next couple of days. And we said, okay. And the very next day she came back and denied it. Uh, no reason given. She just denied it. So that got kicked up to the Alabama court of criminal appeals and they denied it on a technicality because they said that we didn't give them a certain piece of paperwork um, that they needed to look at the case. And the issue with that is the trial courts in Madison County never gave us that document in time. So our lawyers, when they sent off um, the required documents for the appeal of the qualified immunity, they said, hey, we have not received these documents yet from the trial courts, but by the time that you get to this, the trial court should have it uploaded onto the server so you'll be able to access it through the server and not in person in this packet. And apparently that wasn't good enough. So they denied it on that technicality. So then we kicked it up to the Alabama Supreme Court and they denied it, but they didn't give a reason. They just said, no. Um, 2018 was an election year. So I don't know if that played into it or not, but there stands a reason to believe that maybe that was, you know, why they gave no opinion when they denied it. Um, you know, if I'm going to say no to something, I'm usually going to tell you why, you know, so that you understand why I'm choosing to go against it. And I think that would be common with any, any individual, but um, the courts decided to not give an opinion. So that was all in 2019. So just to jump in, because I, I want to make sure I understand this correctly. So there was a hearing initially where you had all these different people and Ben was cleared as well. And then including in that group of people was the DA. Is that right? Correct. So then fast forward a month or two, that same DA decides to go against the city, the chief and everyone else who said this was a, a good shoot, as you said, and take it upon themselves to prosecute. Am I right with that? Correct. So talk to me about that DA, because the reason I asked that is I had um, Greg Kelly on, who was a uh, Texas high school student who was accused of molesting a child in a home he was staying in with a fellow team member. The The absolute abandonment of policing and the judicial system in that particular case is fucking nauseating. And it's, you know, thank God he just had a bunch of incredible people behind him and lawyers that were, you know, amazing. But once you saw that initial mistake made, it was a, a domino effect of people covering their ass. And when you looked at the background of some of these prosecutors and, you know, the, the legal side as well, you see corruption, you see, you know, self um, promotion, you see pol politicking. And meanwhile, Greg, you know, an 18 year old initially, is in prison for something he didn't do. And the molester is freed and he ended up carrying on molesting other people as well. Um, so you assume that someone, you know, a judge or a prosecutor or a you know, defender, whoever it is, um, is ethical 
and someone you can trust the same way as a doctor wears a white coat and throws a stethoscope around, you assume they're an expert in medicine. As we know, that's not always the case in either of those two examples. So talk to me about the DA. And I also, also know the assistant DA had history with Huntsville Police Department as well. So uh, again, I'm not, I don't work for Madison or in Madison County. So I don't know them to the extent as those officers would, but um Robert Sard is the district attorney for Madison County, and he's running for re-election unopposed, which was disappointing to hear. Uh, but <clears throat> uh, he was a district attorney at the time, still currently is. And then our chief, the chief prosecutor in the case was Tim Gann. And then I guess the assistant was Tim Douthit. Uh Tim Gann was a Huntsville police officer. Um, and he had some things happen in his career um, that he got in trouble for. Um, and basically he jumped ship from the PD and went to the DA's office. Um, under chief McMurray's tenure as chief, there had been bad blood between the DA's office and Huntsville police department due to, uh, several things politically, um, different funding, I guess, between the, the DA's office and Huntsville police department. Um, and they just didn't get along. Um, so that's, to my knowledge, that's the extent that I, that I know about that. Because as you see, this is a, a common denominator with so many issues, whether it's jurisdictions not playing well together and someone ends up dying in the process while they're fighting. But it's this ego element. And I think it needs to be highlighted, you know, because here we are and Ben's in prison as we record this. Right. And, you know, this ultimately seems to be just that, an ego issue. Oh, well, you hurt my feelings. You, you, you did whatever while I was working with you or, you know, your funding's bigger than my funding or whatever it is. And that should never, ever get in the way of our own responders' well-being, the well-being of the people we serve. And I saw that. I, you know, I, I argued with dispatch one time just trying to get a unit to a fire I was standing in front of and I was in an EMS unit and they were arguing with me like whose jurisdiction it was. I'm like, don't give a fuck whose jurisdiction. Just send the closest unit yeah. so that we can save these people's house. Mm -hmm. You know, so you see this so often. But I want to make that very clear. I want to underline this. I watched the body cam footage. I, I listened to, you know, to the interviews you've done with Andy. Um, you know, I, to me, it's such an open and shut case. It's tragic. It's no less tragic that a person is dead and that someone was forced to pull the trigger and, and the, you know, protocol was deviated from that put Ben in that position in the first place. But it is what it is. And for that to everyone to agree initially and then retroactively, whatever happened for this to ha this to be allowed to, to go from, you know, you're cleared to, oh, actually, you're a murderer is is absolutely disgusting. And it sounds to me, what do I know, but from the outside looking in and researching this, that this is politicking and this is ego and there's a man's life and, you know, a married couple's lives at stake because of, you know, someone's inability to have the humility and, and the, the courage to say, yeah, someone is dead and it's tragic. But sadly, that's what happens when you call the police and stick a gun to your head. I hate to tell you, but this is the way it is. Right. I mean, like I said earlier, if you can't learn from kindergarten how to follow directions, um, bad things could potentially happen. You know, if you if you are if you call the police and when they get there, you still have a weapon out, and like, and I know people call and they have you know a gun holstered on their side. That's okay. 
you know, but if you have a gun or a knife or a baseball bat or whatever the weapon of your choice is, and it's actively out and presented, you're asking for whatever happens to you. Um, and I know that sounds harsh, but that's the cold reality. You know, if you can't follow directions and have the mental awareness that, hey, they have guns and they police is who I'm talking about, you know, police have guns. And when they show up, if they see a weapon that's perceived as a threat to them and usually bad things happen, if you don't have the mental awareness to, to realize that that's on you, that's not on the police officer. Um, so, and you know, that's, that's what happened April 3rd. Um, he called the police and I want to make it clear, you know, um, cause a lot of people have said, well, he was, he was trying to get help and Ben just showed up and killed him. That was the help. And that was, that was what was said during trial. Uh, the, uh, the prosecutor, Tim Gann, he said, you know, Jeffrey Parker called the police for help and the help they got was Ben Darby shooting him in the head. And that's wrong because if you listen to the 911 call, uh, Parker calls and says, Hey, uh, I've got a gun to my head. I'm fixing to blow my brains out. The front door's open. And the dispatcher says, hold, stay on the line with me. And I'm going to connect you to someone that can help you. And Parker says, no, I'm good. So he wasn't asking for help. He was asking for bad things to happen to him that day. And, you know, the public doesn't know that because it's been four years and we've not been allowed to talk about it. Um, so, you know, having this podcast and others and just different opportunities that's I'm trying to let people know, like, yes, it's a tragic situation, but he was not asking for help because there was help given to him before the police officers arrived and he denied it. Well, speaking of that as well, I think it's important to be a good place to slide it in. Talk to me about Jeff Parker, you know, his, his uh, ethnic philosophy, I guess you could say, and also what he had told neighbors, because I don't care if it was after the fact. It mm-hmm. paints a, a fuller picture. I know that they didn't accept this as evidence, but I think that's absolute bullshit. This is a, an integral part of what we all perceive as worst case when we first walk in. You mentioned about going to that, you know, the uh, citizen's alarm. I was the firefighter and trained by, you know, much better firefighters than me, just because you go to a fire alarm that's bullshit, you still wear your gear and your pack and you take what you need. And then you figure out, I'm going to downgrade. Mm-hmm. Well, if you go to, you know, a specific home, you're going to assume that that person's going to try and kill you. And then you downgrade to where you are. So <laughs> talk to me about him and then the threats that he made to his neighbor. So Jeff Parker was a white male. Um, and I say that, not that that matters, but in police shootings, uh, that's, that's a very big component. You know, they look on, was it black on black, white on black, black on white, white on white, et cetera. And, um, so there is no race debate in Ben's incident. Uh, it was a white police officer who, uh, took the life of a white male. And I bring that up just because during his trial, uh, black lives matter showed up at the courthouse. Um, you know, trying to do, trying to do their foolishness. But anyways, um, to my knowledge, um, Parker had been arrested for, um, drug use, um, theft, um, having, uh, drug paraphernalia, things like that. Um, he was in prison, uh, in North Alabama and he joined and became a white supremacist while he was in the prison. Um, and, 
one of his neighbors, um, I'm not going to name him just for his, for his well-being, but uh, one of his neighbors who lived on his street had had several conversations with Parker about um, police and Parker made it known to this neighbor that he hated police, that uh, he was a white supremacist and he had nothing good for him and that he had a plan to lure a police officer into his, into his home and kill them. And that's exactly what he tried to do uh, in April, April, 2018. Um, he called, his plan was to call the police, which he did, or to call dispatch and let them know, hey, I need, I'm about to kill myself. Uh, the front door's open. And that was his plan to lure them in. And he was successful in that. Um, he was not successful in killing a police officer because Ben Darby saved the lives of three three officers that day. And he had the wherewithal to realize that. But um, the neighbor uh, tried to testify during court. Um, I believe our, our lawyer asked him, uh, how did Jeff Parker feel about police? And he was able to get out that Parker hated police and then objection, objection, objection. And so the DA and the, the prosecutor um, gets up and says, that's hearsay. And um, we, our lawyers said, no, it's not hearsay. It's a direct conversation. The conversation that I'm having with you right now is a direct testimony account. Um, now, if, uh, if some of a friend of ours was in the, in the room with you and hearing this conversation, and then he was telling someone else about it, that would be considered hearsay because he wasn't involved in the conversation. He heard it third party. And so um, the judge ordered the jury to leave the room. And the, you know, again, uh, I don't think I mentioned it on this show yet, but I was not allowed into the courtroom. There was no one allowed into the courtroom. The jury or the courtroom was completely closed off to the public, which is a Sixth Amendment violation. Um, yes, we did have a room set up for us, but the the uh, violation comes through when the judge would turn off the camera with it through certain parts of the trial. So we'd be sitting in the the designated room and all of a sudden the TV screen would go black and the sound would be cut off. And so this was one of those incident instances where the jury was told to leave the courtroom. So they were ushered out and it was just uh, Ben and his legal team, the DA's office, and then the witness <clears throat> and then the judge. And the judge said, uh, well, when, when did you hear, or when did you have this conversation with Mr. Parker? And the neighbor said it was about a, a year prior to this incident. And the judge decided that because it wasn't immediate within that time frame, um, that Parker could have changed his mind and not hated police anymore. Let me ask you this. If, if you heard or you were speaking to one of the terrorists of 9-11 and they said a year prior that they were going to fly a plane into the building, would that not be admissible in evidence then? Um, I would take it as a threat, you know. I, I, I would say that would probably be taken seriously in that yeah. particular investigation. Exactly. So, um, for whatever reason, she said, "No, uh, you're not. You're not allowed to talk to the jury about it. You're not allowed to testify to the jury, but you can talk to the court record." So, the court record is the lady with the with the little computer who's typing, you know, the entire the entire uh, trial. So, he was allowed to tell her 
and the judge and, you know, both sides were allowed to hear his testimony and she was allowed to record it, but the jury wasn't allowed to hear. Well, if the jury is the, if the jury is the people that are going to make the decision as to whether or not Ben was guilty of murder, why couldn't hear, why couldn't they hear that testimony? Because that transcript is now at the court of criminal appeals and his testimony, which I have a copy of it is in that transcript. So if the judges can hear it, why can't the jury hear it? You know, there's a huge discrepancy there because if the jury would have heard that, uh, I truly believe they wouldn't have convicted that. Now let's talk about gag orders as well. So what's heartbreaking, I've touched on it a couple of times is we come out of this last couple of years. I'm hoping there's going to be a huge discussion on improving mental and physical health in this country. And instead, I get faced with Johnny Depp's divorce trial and learn that his wife poos on the bed. Fucking awesome. That's really going to change my life in a, in a great way. But your case, Ben's case, was not only a closed trial, but also you were not allowed to speak and advocate for him for three years. So is that normal for this kind of case? And if so, you know, just, just elaborate on that for me, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah. So when Ben was um, first arrested on the indictment, um, the chief and the mayor came out, you know, publicly said, we support Ben Darby. He's not a murderer. He followed his policies and training and procedures, state law, local law. And then the DA's office gets up and has a press conference and says, no, Ben Darby's a horrible person. He is indeed a murderer and he deserves to go to jail. And so the judge, after those two occurrences, the judge issued a gag order. So um, no one was allowed to talk about the case. Anyone directly involved was not allowed to talk about it. And, you know, um, I've never been in this situation before, so I don't have a lot of experience with gag orders, but um, I don't know. I don't know why she did that. You know, the only thing I could think of is she didn't want to have the back and forth match between the city and the DA's office. But, you know, um, I, I really don't know why she didn't. I mean, I have my own conclusion. She didn't want the truth to be put out. You know, she didn't want the public to hear, you know, preceding the case. This happened and this happened and these officers did this wrong and Ben did this correctly. Um, because again, Ben was not during the incident review board, Ben was completely cleared. The other two officers had to go back to, to the academy for remedial training on lack of threat assessment. And that was documented in their in their file that they did not know how to correctly perceive a threat against them or another officer. Ben did not have to go through any of that. Ben didn't get in trouble. And now like local media is trying to make a big deal about, you know, um, the department and personnel with the city, no one supported those other officers. All their support went behind a convicted murderer, but they didn't go to help out, um, you know, Officer Pegues and Officer Beckles. Um, no, that's wrong because Ben didn't do anything wrong. He, he followed policy to the fullest extent. Um, he didn't violate policy and procedure and tra training standards. They did. Um, those other two officers were also put into specialized units afterwards. So that's a reward. You know, Ben was told, hey, you have to go work eight to five in an office. And then Pegues was told, hey, you're now a school resource officer. So, but she can't handle a guy with a gun, but now she's going to go protect kids with the very real, with the very real chance that a gunman could come to that school. And <clears throat> there was an incident 
where there was a gunman near her school. And let's just say that the officers who responded to the scene said, you know, we'll handle this because we know how to handle guys with guns. You don't. Well, I think that's a very real thing. And I've spoken about this numerous times because I had an issue in my son's middle school with it was a different a different kind of outcome, but the same thing where the wrong person was in the wrong school. And mm-hmm. it ended up in that particular thing. Very long story short, I've talked about it on on uh, previous episodes and it's been resolved now, years later. But he, in the other house, was having issues. I'm divorced and in his mother's home, there was there was tension and all this stuff. He was just upset as a, as a little boy, middle schooler. And in one of the classrooms as a kid had been bullying him and he's just basically crying at his desk. And that was taken as a threat towards the school and he ended up in a psych holding for three days. And it turned out that that police officer that made that decision was basically just wanting to get home early. He didn't want to, you know, deal with it. And so they sent it, they do what we call a Baker Act here in Florida. And while I was there, I was watching the same school sending more and more uh, middle school kids through this facility. So the wrong school resource officer can do damage in many other ways than just shooting. But I've talked about as well, a lot of times you see retirees in that position. And we had the Parkland shooting. I've had people, I've had, you know, students from the Parkland shooting. I've had one of the students' fathers who responded to it, who's a firefighter. I had the the chief and the city manager. I mean, just all these people. And that's a classic example of where the SRO didn't act and more children died. So I couldn't agree with you more. And watching the body cam footage and not Monday morning quarterbacking because I'm not a police officer, but based on what should have happened at that moment, regardless of all the backstory and everything, at that moment, the weapon was not trained on him. They were in the fatal funnel and they were not securing a perimeter on the outside. Mm -hmm. So with all that being said, did they at least defend Ben? Were they in his corner when it came to that? No. So the DA's office actually prepped piggies for a week and took her off the street basically told hpd hey we're going we need her for the next week so she's ours and they prepped her for a week to take the stand uh, during the immunity hearing uh she was very unstable on the stand emotional crying uh she could not answer questions simple questions she could not answer um and just talked in circles um beckles so Beckles was a witness for the for the prosecution, but he actually testified in Ben's favor. And that so then uh, during the trial, you had the prosecutors and Beckles going back and forth with each other because he wasn't speaking correctly, I guess, for the prosecutor side. Um, he was testifying for Ben. Uh, and he at one point said, you know, I was pulling the slack out of my trigger, but Ben was able to Ben beat me to it, you know, in essence. Um, so no, Pegues did not, did not defend Ben. Um, she uh, very much so spoke against him. Where because it, oh, no, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Just because <laughs> just again, just to underline again, just at that moment, at when you get to see it in the body cam, the only reason Ben went inside is because those two were already th- across the threshold. So right. had a perimeter been secured, Ben never would have been put in that position as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the the reason why Jeff Parker is dead today is because Piggy didn't follow protocol and went inside that house. If she wouldn't have gone inside that house, 
I think there's a 99.9% chance that Jeff Parker would be alive because they wouldn't have had to go in the house. You know, would he have come out with a gun and then made, made a furtive movement and the officers would have to act? That's possible. Um, but I firmly believe that if Piggies would have followed the training and the standards that are in law enforcement concerning those situations, um, he would be alive and Ben would be home with me. You know, I wouldn't have had, uh, we're coming up on nine months a week from today um, that he's been in prison. And I was just able to see him for the first time in that time span uh, last week. That's the first time you got to see him? Yeah. What's the reason for that? <laughs> uh, COVID apparently is still real. And then uh, lack of manpower. Lack of manpower to let a man see his wife. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. All right. Well, then let's <laughs> just come back for a second. Yeah. Yeah. So just get to the, the prison point. So, so they finally have um, the trial as we've now got, I mean, there's the, the neighbor's testimony about, you know, the threats, there's his actual background. And let me be very clear, no person deserves to die because they've done drugs and petty crime and all that stuff. That's yeah. tragic in itself. But his hand was forced. He was initially cleared. Now the DA is on this, 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 uh, you know, rampage trying to get him behind bars they have finally had the trial so again talk to me about that you, you're not allowed in it so what were those few weeks or months like for you and again let's revisit not only ben's mental health but yours by this point yeah so um i initially like i didn't take any time off until after his conviction i mean during the trial obviously i was off and then i didn't take any leave from work until after the conviction um i still went to work every day and I served my community to the best of my ability and did my thing. Um, he would, he would go to work and do, you know, um, the accreditation stuff behind the desk. Um, so leading up to the trial, obviously it was tense. So let me back up. So 2019 was the immunity hearing. Um, we were told, you know, hopefully we'll have a, a trial by the end of 2019. And then March, 2020 hits and the world shuts down because of COVID. So the presiding judge canceled all trial trial uh, trial court for, until COVID was, you know, we figured out what was going on with COVID. So everything, if you had a trial set, it was basically put on standby until the courts reopened again. So at the end of this, I think it was the end of 2020, beginning of 21, they said that they were going to lift lift that and start having trial court again. So 2020 was crazy in and of itself just because of COVID. And then you have the, the, uh, the trial hanging over us, you know, when is, when are we going to trial, you know? And so January of 2021, the DA's office, so Tim Gann and Tim Douthat, the two prosecutors walked across the street to our lawyer's office <clears throat> and they said, Hey, we want to offer him a deal. And our lawyer said, okay, well, what's the deal? And they said, uh, we want to offer him manslaughter, which is, it'll be no prison time, five years probation. So let me go back to originally Ben was cleared by the department and his incident review board, which included members of the district attorney's office, said that it was a good shoot. He was good to go. And then between the incident review board and him getting indicted, there was talks of if you if you fire him, we won't charge him. That was discussed, and the chief uh, knowingly 
in his wisdom said, no, I'm not going to do that because he knew just because someone says something, unfortunately, people aren't true to their word nowadays. Just because they say they're not going to do something doesn't mean that they're that they're not going to. And so um, the chief was like, no, I'm not firing him. He followed. He followed policy and procedure and training. He didn't do anything that would that would force me to fire him. I'm not firing him. So that that debate between uh, the office and the lawyers and the judge or and uh, the chief went back and forth for from May to August, and then they, he got indicted. We had the hearing in 2019. All that was denied. You know, 2020 hit. So 2021, they say again, he doesn't have to go to prison. Just take take a take manslaughter, which is still a felony. So he would be a convicted felon for the rest of his life. You know, wouldn't be able to be a police officer, wouldn't be able to uh, uh, protect himself with, with carrying a firearm. And Ben was like, no, I didn't commit murder and I didn't commit manslaughter. Um, manslaughter basically boils down to you recklessly killed someone. Um, it wasn't reckless. What he did wasn't reckless. Um, what the off, the other officers did by going into his house, yeah, that could be be considered reckless. Um, but what Ben Darby did was not. And so, uh, he, he's like, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not taking a deal. And so we go to trial, uh, we get it, we get an announcement that we're going to trial, uh, the week of May 3rd. So, um, I talked to some people at work. Um, my SWAT commander, I said, Hey, uh, can we possibly do a protection detail on me so I don't have to worry about walking in and out of the courthouse all day because it was a big that his trial and his case was a big deal in Alabama. And so um he was like, yeah, I'm all for it. Let me get it cleared. Um basically it was cleared up to the chief. And then the chief said, no, I'm not doing it because I don't want our Darby involved with Huntsville's Darby, which is impossible because we're married, but whatever. So I had team guys who took took the time and, you know, they use their vacation and they helped us out that week just by making sure that I didn't have to, that's one less thing that I had to worry about that week, you know, was my, was my well-being. Obviously I was still aware of what was going on and aware of my surroundings, but I knew I could rely on those guys. And so, um, we, Monday was jury selection. So that is usually, um, open to the public and it was not because of, uh, COVID supposedly was an excuse. And then right before the hearing, right before the trial, the week prior, um, the lawyers all sat down to go over the final details. And the DA's office asked that police officers would not be allowed to come to the trial because that would intimidate the jury, supposedly. And the judge said, yeah, we're not going to open the trial to anyone. It's just going to be a closed courtroom. Uh, Not even his wife can come. So that right there is showing that Ben doesn't have any support, which is false. He had, we have a ton of support and it's grown ever since I've been able to come public with all this information. But um, Ben has had been supported by so many people from the get-go. And now the, you know, the jury, they walk in that day and they see uh, Ben sitting by himself with his, his few lawyers, no family, nothing, no one there to help show support for him. And so that's a, that's a, uh, misconceived perception that they had of Ben. Um, so the first day they had jury selection. And so they're trying to, they, the judge allowed for a a bigger jury pool to be selected from just because of the, the 
complexity of the case. And so during jury selection, the uh, prosecutor gets up and he says, and granted, Ben is in there with his lawyers and then it's the prosecutor. And I don't know if the DA was present or not, um, but it was at least uh, Tim Gann, Tim Dowden. And Gann gets up there and he says, all right, uh, how many of you think there's a war on cops? And Ben said, everyone raised their hand. And then he follows up the question. He says, well, how many of you think it's warranted because you have bad apples like Derek Chauvin? And then he named off a couple other cops that had uh, a bad career. And you just glitched for a second. So he said Derek Chauvin and Ben Darby. And then he had listed some other police officers that had a bad, bad career. And so he's already, so here you're making the assumption and you're putting it, you're planting that deception into the jury that there is a war on cops, which is true. Everyone knows that. Um, but also that Ben Darby is bad because Ben Darby and Derek Chauvin are in the same sentence. Um, Derek Chauvin's situation is completely different and it has no, uh, no ties to what Ben's situation is. They're not similar in any, in any fashion, but he just took a corrupt situation and tied it and married it to Ben and planted that seed of deception into the jury. And so when he asked that, uh, Ben said it got really quiet. And one of the, there's a female in the jury pool and she kind of pointed or she directed her arm towards Ben, like, yeah, this guy, like there's a war on him, you know? And, uh, so they proceeded through jury selection and finally, at the end of the end of the day, Monday, they were able to strike a jury. And so we went to trial Tuesday. So um, Tuesday, we go to the courthouse, like I dropped Ben off at his lawyer's office. And then I went to the courthouse with uh, friends and family and we waited in our room. And it was just like Zoom, just like this. They had uh, they had it on the uh, on the TV. And all we could see of the courtroom was the witness stand. So just the box. And then we partially saw the judge. But the main focus, the main camera was on the witness stand. So people would come up and testify. And um, so the first the first instance of there being an issue with um, evidence and things getting admitted or submitted was with um, the neighbor who had that direct testimony with Mr. Parker about him hating cops and all that. So like I, like I said, he was able to speak to the court record, but the jury was not allowed to hear that testimony. Uh, the jury later on, um, Jason from Huntsville, who had taught Ben in his academy on the action versus reaction and the incident, the call that he had to answer that ended up with him getting shot. Uh, he walks in and Ben said when Jason walked into the courtroom, he heard the prosecutor's bench say, Jason cannot testify. He could hear them say that. So Jason gets up on the stand, they swear him in. And uh, right before we, our lawyers start asking him questions, the uh, prosecutor says, we need a recess. And so the judge grants a recess, the TV gets turned off. And when the TV gets turn, turns back on, Jason's not on the stand anymore. And you know, the people who knew Jason's story and knew the importance and the relevance that it had to Ben's case that were sitting with me, you know, they're like, what the heck just happened? Like, why can't he testify? So when 
the day was over, I asked Ben, I said, what happened with Jason? You know, cause I wasn't there. So I, I didn't know. And he said, they wouldn't allow him to testify. And they said he could talk to the court record again, but the jury was removed from the courtroom and was not allowed to hear his testimony. Under what grounds is that allowed? Because that's an expert testimony. That's someone from his own department. That's someone who's experienced what happens when you don't take the shot. So I don't understand even how they were allowed to, you know, remove his testimony from the courtroom. From how it was explained to us, Jason's testimony spoke to the ultimate issue of what Ben did. And because of that, it wasn't allowed as evidence, which doesn't make sense to me because if you're defending yourself in any situation, you're going to use things that corroborate your story or what happened with you in support of yourself. So Jason's story aligned with what Ben did and proved that Ben acted correctly, but that was not allowed to be uh, submitted as, as evidence. So um, those testimonies, um, the fact that the other officers had to go through remedial training and Ben did not, was not allowed into testimony. Um, uh, just so many different things that if the jury would have heard it, you know, that he was trained, that he did go to an officer survival school, that he was allowed. Basically, he did what he did because he was trained to do that way. Um, case law. Case law was not allowed to be instructed to the jury. So when they got to um, the end of the trial and the judge is going through uh, different case laws that were allowed and what was not allowed, Graham versus Connor was not allowed to be told to the jury. And for everyone who doesn't know what that is, uh, in layman's terms, it basically says the officer does not have to wait for the weapon to be pointed or used against them to use force. Um, but the judge didn't allow that. The judge didn't allow Montu versus Carr, which uh, is very similar related. Um, the officer used force before the force was used against him, which you're supposed to do because the, the goal at the end of the day is to go home. You go home at the end of the day, no matter what. And that was not allowed to be introduced. Um, Krasinski versus Palm Beach uh, Sheriff's Office down in Florida. That case was not allowed to be used. Um, and I, it's either Montute or Krasinski. I don't remember which one exactly. But one of them deals with uh, it was a kid at a school or a kid at a public area. He had a weapon and he wouldn't put the weapon down. And the officer who shot him was in fear for his life and the other people's lives in that area. And there was another officer on the scene who said that he wasn't in fear for his life. And the, and the courts ruled in the officer who used force and said, you have to go off of his objective, objectively reasonableness, which also ties back to Graham versus Connor. Um, that was not allowed to be used for Ben. Ben was not allowed to be viewed by his actions as an objectively reasonable officer through his training and experience. The jury was only allowed to hear it through Officer Pegues in her, quote, reasonableness to not shoot Parker for the threat that they that he presented to them. So, you know, case law backs Ben. And some of the, you know, some of this case law comes out of Alabama. It comes out of our uh, appeals court. So you have state case law and then you have federal case law that backs him. 
And the judge said, well, we're not going to allow those because uh, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not state law. And it's like, okay, Graham versus Connor is a bedrock case in law enforcement use of force. It's taught nationwide in every academy, but you're not going to allow it. You know, the federal umbrella covers state and local law. So why aren't you allowing that into the picture? Um, you know, so case law, testimony, different evidence, um, just so many things that weren't allowed to be said. And if the jury would have heard that, it would have, they wouldn't have convicted him. Yeah, it just, it seems insanity to me. I mean, again, even with the kid, and that's absolutely tragic, but if, uh, you know, anyone brings a weapon in, like you said, and even with a suicide attempt, I was thinking about this. If you're, if you're standing on the other side of a bridge, like Kevin Hines, who came on the show, you know, the, the, unless you grab someone and fling them over the railing with you, the, the safety to the officer, the responder is, is a, is a lot higher. When you say you're going to swallow a bottle of pills, chances of someone trying to help or getting hurt is a lot lower. But when there's a gun involved, and as you, as you pointed out, anyone who's listening to this, just Google Ben Darby and you'll see the YouTube video pop up. I think the title says, um, body cam Ben Darby murdering Jeff Parker. So it's obviously slightly biased to ever posted that. Just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, again, both, as you mentioned, both, you know, weapons are low ready. He's got the gun already up to his head. I mean, it would take a flick of the wrist and, you know, there may be multiple corpses in that house. Right. Um, but. There are so many cases where, you know, for example, the names I named where, where our officers are in the ground. There's one that was recent of a woman that was distraught. The officer went to help her and then she ended up stabbing him. You know, I mean, you know, the domestics where someone breaks it up and then the person breaking up gets murdered. You know what I mean? It's just over and over and over again. So there's got to be a mountain of evidence to support this. And you have body cam. You have, you know, all these things showing, look, this is what happened. They were where they shouldn't have been. He was, you know, holding this gun here. There was only a couch between, you know, you and them. I mean, he could have even shot through the window. You know, I mean, there's all these different areas as someone who's a complete white belt to this, you know, like myself, because the only exposure to law enforcement I have is working alongside you guys on scenes. But it just seems, again, like it would be an open and shut case. And it blows my mind. There has to be that political, you know, politicized ego element to this. And then I think it's just a constant cover your ass because these people don't want to admit that they were wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes you a good police officer, a good firefighter, is sometimes we are. We turn around and go, you know what? Well, in this case, if you decide to prosecute and you realize, okay, no, 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 I, uh, I was just, I don't know what I was thinking, then you should have the ability to, to undo that. And I think that's kind of what puts us to where we are now is, you know, we need to get this overturned. And I say we, I mean everyone, you know, every single person listening and anyone that can share this podcast. So ultimately, you know, Ben was prosecuted for murder. Mur- is it murder? Yeah, not not even yeah. manslaughter. Is that right? Yeah, so- he, he was prosecuted for murder. And um, during deliberations, the jury had asked, is there not another charge? So they didn't, so that right there shows they didn't want to convict him for murder. No, um, unanimous. It's not unanimous. Was it unanimous because they got the conviction? Yeah, because you have to get you have to get all twelve on board saying yes, it is murder. But when you when they come out and say, "Is there not any other charge?" that shows right there that they weren't all on board with it. Um, when I'm gonna go go back to one thing really quick. Please, um, he was given Parker was given seven commands to drop the gun. 
you know, and people were like, well, you know, uh, he was trying to drop the gun or he didn't want to listen to the officers or whatever. And like I had said earlier, he set this up to kill cops because when he was given help at the, initially from dispatch, he said, no, I'm good. Uh, he was given seven chances to drop the weapon and he didn't. Um, when police officers are faced with an eminent threat, they are an eminent threat to themselves or to another police officer or to a bystander. They are allowed to eliminate that threat. And that's, that's Alabama statute. That's a, uh, that's, you know, state law. Um, I think it's out. That's a 13, a I believe it's either 323 or 327. Anyway, either way though, um, when officers are faced with an eminent threat that they perceive to their life or another person, they can eliminate that threat. And so after Ben was convicted, I think it was two weeks after the fact, I had a meeting with our post training or state uh, police officers training, Sanders and training commission. And uh, I met with the secretary and, uh, you know, we talked about Ben's case and I said, are, do 10, long, 10 uh, police academies in the state of Alabama? And he said, yes. And I said, okay. I said, are we still teaching these new cops, recruits that haven't hit the street yet, that if they are faced with an eminent threat to their life or to another person's life, that they are to eliminate that threat? And he said, yes, we're still teaching that. And I said, then why is my husband in prison? Because that's exactly what he did. He followed the training. <clears throat> he followed the training and the standards that you put out as your entity over policing for the whole state of Alabama. He followed that to a T by eliminating the threat that was in front of himself and the other two officers, but now he's in prison for it. And he, I, I was told, I can't give you an answer for that. I don't know. So case law backs him, state law backs him. He faced an eminent threat and he, he eliminated that threat, but yet he's in prison. Well, also you have one outcome, which is the, he just pulls the trigger and shoots himself. So he's, still dead okay so that's you know a very very viable option that could have happened right. secondly and i don't know what his religious background was but one of my guests said recently and i was like i'd never thought of it that way in certain religions they believe that suicide is a sin mm -hmm. and so death by cop is a, a loophole in the religious suicide journey where you force someone else's hand to kill you and their belief is therefore they'll still go to, to heaven. So right. there again, you have people in uniform put in situations where they are forced to kill and then they have to go through this rigmarole. Hopefully most of them are still walking free to this day, but Ben and possibly others behind bars were put in that situation, you know? So that's, so unfair, but again, that's not something that you hear that, you know, that, that maybe there was a, whether warranted or not, a psychological reason, either I don't want to pull the trigger, I can't do it, or I think I'm going to see a little man in a spandex red suit and horns if I pull the trigger myself, whatever it is. So you're going to force someone else to do it. You're going to, you're going to force a driver to, you know, run over you and then they have to live with that the rest of your life. Or you're going to force a police officer to pull the trigger so they have to live out for the rest of their life. Right. Um, you know, he he defended his life and the other two officers lives that day. And unfortunately, a life was taken. But again, he didn't wake up that day saying, I'm going to go kill someone at work. Um, and, you know, <clears throat> the, the prosecutors, they never gave 
they they didn't show the evidence that murder was committed because it was a murder, um, you know, but they were able to dictate what was said in court and what wasn't said in court, what was allowed to be put in as evidence and what wasn't allowed by saying, you know, objection, we don't agree with this or, hey, we need to have a, we need to have a hearing, we need a recess. And, you know, um, unfortunately that worked in their favor and against us. And so uh, the jury deliberated. We, I think we got done on Thursday. And so the remainder of Thursday, the jury deliberated and uh, they didn't come to a decision. And so they came back Friday and all throughout the week before the trial started, the judge would go through this list of things that she had to say. And she would say, you know, um, has anyone talked about the case outside of this courtroom? Has anyone tried to talk to you about the case? You know, because um, ethically, they're not supposed to talk about it. Does that happen? I doubt it, you know, because people get on social media and people talk and, you know, people know, oh, I'm on the Ben Darby case today or this week. They're going to be asking you questions. Um, And so, but she was very flippant in how she asked, like it was like, okay, no one said anything, right? Okay. Okay, good. Let's move on. There was no Yes, an opportunity was made for them. If someone did talk about it, they could have raised their hand, but it was very quickly announced. And then we, we, we continued on. And so um, Thursday, like I said, they had deliberations, didn't, ha- didn't come to a decision, come back Friday morning and uh, they're deliberating. And then Ben calls me and says, hey, uh, they have to restart deliberations. One of the jury members is going to the hospital. <clears throat> and... I said, okay, do we know why? And she, he said, she's having a panic attack. Um, I don't know this to be a fact, but I would say that it's uh, certainly probable that was she the holdout saying that, no, he did not commit murder. And she was pressured by the other jury members to say, just, we want to go home because everyone hates jury duty. No one, no one wakes up and says, oh, I really hope I get picked for jury selection. You know, no one wants to do that. And, you know, what forced her to go to the hospital that day? So when she left to go to the hospital, they had to completely restart deliberations because the alternate picks don't sit in on deliberations. They're required to stay, uh, but they're not part of the true 12 that make that decision. So they got the alternate member to step in and they had to completely restart. And then uh, right before lunch that day, they, uh, they came out with the verdict. So um, Ben was with his lawyer. I was with Ben's parents and some of my uh, friends and family. And I got a phone call from one of our other lawyers for the civil case that we have pending. And he said, hey, the, uh, the jury's in or the verdict is in. And so I called Ben. And I was like, hey, you know, so-and-so just called me and said the verdict is in. And he said, hold on. And I could hear him talk to his lawyer. And he said, yeah, the, e- the email just came through. Um, go to the courthouse. So we hurry up and get to the courthouse. And as we're walking in, the judge is thanking the jury for doing their civil duty of, you know, coming to jury, jury duty and all that. And uh, she's reading the verdict and she reads the verdict and says that he's uh, found guilty of murder. And I just like time just stopped. Like it, I don't really know how to explain it. It just, everything stopped and 
it was just very eerie in the room. Um, and everyone who wasn't family left and gave us the room. There was other lawyers, our civil lawyers were in there, random people from the public, friends and family, they all left. And, uh, you know, I cried obviously. And because I didn't, neither of us, you know, we went home Thursday night and Friday morning driving into Huntsville. Um, we didn't have a conviction in our mind, you know, even though so much testimony and even though so much evidence wasn't allowed to be heard, surely the jury would see, you know, based off of what was allowed and the fact that, well, why don't they let him testify? Why did he come up and say that? Why did the neighbor come out and say that Parker hated police, but that's all that we were allowed to hear from him? You know, why weren't they allowed to tell their story? And why was murder the only charge? Why wasn't there a lesser offense? Because it wasn't murder. And they recognized, they initially recognized that. And so, um, you know, it was a long, it was a long night Thursday. And it was, a, you know, the 30 to 40 minute drive to Huntsville on Friday. So it felt like two hours because we knew, you know, we're about to find out, you know, we're going to find out today what's, what their decision is. And so um, a few minutes had gone by and a deputy had come into the room and he said, Mrs. Darby, I need you to come with me. And, you know, I, I got myself together and I was like, where are we going? You know, like I just found out my husband's going to prison. What do you, what are you trying to do with me? And he said, I'm going to take you to him. And I said, okay. So I, I grabbed his mom and uh, he escorted us to the area where Ben was. And um, I was able to give him a hug and, you know, kiss him and everything. And he said, God's in control of whatever's about to happen. And he's going to get us through this. I might be able to come home tonight. Just, just hold on. It's going to be okay. And I said, okay. And uh, so they took him away and um, <clears throat> we found out that someone had posted his bond uh, his bond was $100,000. And so someone had posted that and he was able to come, come home a few hours later. We were still in Huntsville um, and we got the phone call. We could come pick him up. So uh, we picked him up and we went home and uh, we just, we just went to bed, you know, um, we took care of our dog once we got home and then we just went to bed and uh, the next morning, just in shock, you know, because like I said, we didn't expect a conviction. 99% um, chance of a hung jury, 1% uh, chance of an acquittal. Um, but a conviction was no nowhere in either of our mindset. And we were caught flat-footed that day. And uh, that'll never happen again. I never want to feel the way that I felt um, May 7th, 2021. And I know he doesn't either. And so... Um, we woke up. I mean, we both, I know I didn't sleep well that, that night. Um, and I know he didn't either, but, uh, we woke up and one of my captains had texted me and he said, Hey, uh, I'm bringing you food. So he's like, what do you want? And I was like, sir, I appreciate it, but we're, we're still in bed and you know, it's 1130. We're still in bed. We're not in the mood and we're not hungry. And he said, well, you have to eat because you know, you're going through a very traumatic time and you need the nutrition and all that. He said, if you don't tell me what you want, I'm bringing you McDonald's. 
And so um, we got we got dressed, you know, and cleaned up. And he was very gracious. And he came over. And he said, "Hey, uh, if take as much time as you need. You're, there's no rush for you to come back to work." And I said, "Well, I'm not coming in. I'm not coming in on Monday." I said, "We have to go talk to his lawyer." So um, we just kind of hung out that weekend. Um, we went to church Sunday morning, uh, just like we always do, and. We both didn't want to go, you know, because now he's a convicted murderer, according to uh, what had happened that week. And we walked into our Sunday school and um, everyone just started crying. And they're like, why are you even here? You know, just shocked that after going through that experience and then to show up and go to church and, um, you know, worship that day. And we said, well, because... God's in control of the situation and he's going to get us through it. He's been through it. He's been with us this entire time, even though it may not seem like that to the public eye, but certain things had happened since his shooting to, you know, May 9th, I guess now. And we weren't going to give up, you know, there, there was no giving up. You can't give up because what, what happened to Ben was wrong. And the, the moment that I give up, they went, you know, and so um, we we went to church, did our thing, went home. Monday, we went and talked to his lawyer, and uh, I went back to work on Tuesday, and that was awkward. You know, um, going back to work, and your husband's now a convicted murderer, and he used to be a police officer. And, uh, you know, you get, you're always going to have your the naysayers, you know, who are against you. But for, for the most part, the majority of my department um, has and still does support us. Um, you know, it was just different reactions. I, I walk in and people saw me and it was deer in the headlights like, oh no, you know, it's, it's her. I don't know what to say. I'm going to hurry up and leave. Um, people came up and gave me hugs. People cried with me. Um, and they kind of like I was in training. I had just gotten promoted that February. So I was in some training um, in the department with detectives. And they just basically said, just just come to work. And if you want to if you want to work, work. And if you want to get up and go talk to someone or walk around or take a lap, take a lap. You know, we're not it, the mere fact that you're here today. You know. You, we don't understand why you're at work, but and I was like, well, you, you got to move on. You know, you can't you know, you, you can deal with it and be sad and, you know, go through all those emotions, but you can't stay stuck there. You can't stay stuck in that black hole. And, uh, I knew Ben was okay. I was like, do you need me to be home? And he's like, no, I'm fine. Like, I'm just going to go hang out with family and friends. He said, if, if you want to go back, go. And so I went back to work and then, um, so usually you have your, uh, sentencing date within four to six weeks of, uh, conviction. And so we were thinking the end of June, beginning of July. And uh, we got noticed that the judge pushed it out to August 20th. So, which is very abnormal. Um, you know, you don't get three months to make a, sense, a sentencing decision. So during that time, um, we had asked friends and family and anyone that knew Ben to write a character witness uh, testimony of what they knew of Ben Darby. And so we were able to get 72 different letters from people, all, all types of people, people he grew up from, from grade school, 
um, high school job employers, uh, people from college, college professors, um, people from Huntsville Police Department, people from our church, um, uh, mission boards that Ben worked for in the, in the summers during college, um, family, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't just police that wrote these letters. It was everyone in between. And they all spoke to his high character and his, his high moral, moral standard and that he wasn't a murderer and to please show leniency during his sentencing. So murder in Alabama is a 20 year sentence. It's a 10 year sentence. But if you have a weapon used that uh, bumps it up to a 20 years minimum. So if, so we go to sentencing and the, that was a long drive. Um, that was a very long drive because I, I knew like he's either coming home today or he's not. And if he's not, it's going to be for at least 20 years, you know, unless he, unless he is able to make the appeal bond and then he can come home. And so we go to sentencing and, uh, I was allowed into the courtroom because I was a witness for him. So was his father. And then there was a few seats available after the media had gotten first dibs. And so um, his mother was, was able to get a seat inside the courtroom. But like all of my family, all of his family, friends, um, people from work, people from our church, they all had to stand in a hallway and kind of like peek through the door. You know, they didn't really hear, they didn't hear anything that happened during sentencing. So we submitted a packet of 72 different uh, letters on Ben's behalf um, asking for leniency. And then he had five witnesses. Um, he had a supervisor from Huntsville Police Department that he directly worked for. And then he had our pastor. He had a childhood friend, uh, me, and then his father, and then Ben, of course. So six of us testified for Ben asking for leniency. Um, and, you know, we all would, we all would get sworn in, you know, she would swear us in and look directly at us. And then with me, um, at, with me and I had spoken to everyone else and they, they reiterated this. They said, as soon as they sat down to testify, uh, the judge didn't pay any attention to what they said. Um, when I was telling, when I was pleading with her to be lenient with Ben's sentencing, um, she didn't, she never looked at me. Uh, she was preoccupied with something on her desk. Um, but she, it was like, I wasn't even there. And so I, I said my, my piece and, uh, so did everyone else. Ben got up there and, uh, he said his, and then the, uh, the DA's office gets up and they say, judge, uh, we recommend a 25 year sentence. So again, the minimum for murder is 20, but even further back, fire him and we won't, we won't charge him. Take this manslaughter charge, no prison time. And now they want 25 years in prison. So there's a, there's a lot of discrepancy there. Um, and so 20 years being the minimum. So if, if he would have, if he would have been given just 20 years, he would have been eligible for an appeal bond. So if we were able to pay that bond, he would be able to be home until his appeal went through 20 years in a day or longer, you're not eligible for an appeal bond. So you have to stay in prison day for day until your appeal bond comes back. 
And so the DA's office recommended 25 years and uh, the judge was uh, very much taking notes, very engaged with what they were saying from their side of the room. And uh, she said, when everyone was done speaking, she said, okay, let me look over some things. And then she sentenced him to 25 years. And I believe that was a political uh, statement, kind of just showing everyone, hey, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to get here. So by the time they're doing the sentencing, 2020 has already happened, the George Floyd case, all this thing. So yes. even though the incident was prior to that, you're in a new political environment now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, again, the, Ben's incident was in 2018 um, when the tensions between police and the public weren't as high. I know there, there was still tension there, but it wasn't like it has been post-George Floyd. Um, and if Ben's case would have been tried in 2018, he would not be in prison right now. But political, uh, the political climate and just different things associated with politics, which politics were very much involved in this, especially between the bad blood between the DA's office and Huntsville Police Department, um, that very much weighed heavily onto uh, his, his conviction, I believe. So um, she gave a sentence. And once, the, once Tim Gann said 25 years, we recommend 25 years, I knew he wasn't coming home. Um, so she, she gives the 25-year the sentence and uh, the bailiff comes over Ben gives me a hug, you know, and he gives me his, his wedding band and his, his ID. And he said, everything's going to be okay. Uh, I love you. I'll see you soon. And uh, up until last weekend, that was, I, I hadn't seen him since then. Um, you don't realize like growing up, I was, I would say I was very independent. Um, I was able to take care of myself. Um, but you don't realize after being married for five years, how much you rely on someone until they're taken out of your life. Um, you know, obviously he's still alive. He's not dead, but he's very much removed from my life. And thankfully we were smart enough to have things put into place during um, his conviction and his sentencing um, so that I could be taken care of the best way that I could with, with his absence. Um, obviously, I would like him to be home yesterday because I need him in my life to help me go through, you know, everything, everything that I'm facing. And, you know, he's the man. So he, in our, in our relationship, he takes charge over, over most things. Um, not that I don't have a say in anything, but he's, he's the one that makes the ultimate decision, you know, and we, we regroup and talk about it, but, um, it, it would be nice to have that back, you know, cause not that I'm incapable of making decisions, I'm very much able to do that, but being able to, uh, run things by him, you know, I have to wait for him to call me. I can't call him. So when something happens, you know, I'm like, all right, I hope you call soon. Cause I got, I got stuff to say, you know, um, that I need to discuss with you, but at the same point, it's a recorded line. So I can't truly have, there are certain things I can't talk to him about. And so I would, I have been taking notes since, um, August 20th on things that I need to tell Ben when I'm not being recorded 
And, you know, I was able to do that last weekend. Um, but that's a lot to keep up with, you know, um, cause I, I've got three full-time jobs right now in the sense of I'm a police officer working for my department. I'm also his biggest advocate and that's a full-time job. And then I have my personal life. Like, you know, I still want to go hang out with friends and be able to enjoy uh, the life that I have without Ben to as much as I can, you know, you know, it's not peachy keen and, you know, not everything is great, but things are good enough for, for me to keep going, you know, um, obviously I want him back yesterday. And right now we just, we don't know because the appeal is in, is in motion and there's no timeline as to when the judges will make a decision. So they can make a decision, um, you know, by the end of today, or they can make a decision next June 5th, you know, of like next year. Um, there's no, there's no time constraint. Where with us during the, the appeal, um, there was a time constraint. So, um, you know, he followed his policy. He followed his training. The National Fraternal Order of Police backed him. Um, that's a big deal because they're a very well-known and well-recognized police entity where nationwide officers get their training and decisions come from, from their organization that directly affect law enforcement. If Ben Darby was a murderer, why would all these people back him? Why would the judge, why would the, the chief say, you know, go on record backing him, the city council, the mayor, um, different police departments um, in California have come, gone on record and publicly stated, we support Ben Darby. Um, the national FOP, we support Ben Darby. He was done wrong. He should have been given um, a new trial, but you know, well, now we have to wait. But if he really, if he really did commit murder and he really did break the law, why would they stick their neck out for him? Because it's only going to make them look worse, especially in today's climate. You know, when an officer messes something up, um, everyone's quick to abandon him. And that did not happen. Ben had the full support of his department in his city. And, they, and he still does. Um, I talk with people from his department and from the city uh, regularly, and they are fighting for him to get released. Uh, he is in prison unjustly. And, you know, what's sad is we're never going to get the past nine months and however much longer this goes on, we're never going to get that time back. Um, and nothing is going to happen to those prosecutors because they were covered under, under their uh, training, you know, under their job description. They were just doing their job. Yeah, well, Ben Darby was just doing his job too, but he ended up in prison for it. Well, that accountability is huge. And I think I told you what happened with my son when I went initially to try and resolve that. The school blamed the the agency, the sheriff's office, and the sheriff's office blamed the school. And it yeah. was the most disgusting display of cowardice and lack of ownership I've ever seen. Yeah. And ultimately, mine was one of very, very many voices that pushed legislators to change. And if the same thing had happened to my son two years later, those people will be in prison now. Right. Because you can't just kidnap someone's fucking kid and put them into a psych facility for three days because you want to go home early. Right. You know, and you can't deal with, with, you know, a child who's had trauma at home, maybe be a compassionate individual and notify the parent as well. Um, but, you know, so, and the same with, with, um, Greg's case. 
there was no accountability for all those people to put an innocent high school kid in a prison for several years whilst leaving a sexual predator to carry on preying on people. Mm -hmm. There was no accountability there too. So this is such an important thing, not only to get Ben out, but to push, you know, for change that you can't just get in a position and make up your own fucking rules and, you know, get away with it. I mean, that's just a complete abandonment of, of law. Mm -hmm. So one thing that terrifies me is when I think of a police officer in a prison setting, I'm assuming it wasn't all claps and hugs when he walked in. So how is he doing nine months in being behind bars with a lot of people that aren't exactly huge fans of people in uniform? So uh, if I could say one thing about my husband, he's a very strong-minded individual. Um, he if I were, if the roles were reversed and I were him, uh, I would have cracked. Um, he, you know, I saw him last weekend. He is, he look, he appears to be healthy. Um, he looks the same as he did when I saw him nine months ago. Uh, he's a little bit leaner, uh, which is understandable because the food that they get is trash, but, um, he, he appears to be doing well. Um, so when he was, when he was arrested, after the, after the sentencing, he spent 19 days in the, uh, Madison County jail in isolation because they didn't have uh, protective custody because he was a police officer. He, uh, is, he'll always be housed or he should always be housed, uh, which hasn't happened, but he should always be housed in protective custody. So not with the general population of inmates. Uh, protective custody is reserved for police officers, politicians, um, anyone in the judicial system, firemen, stuff like that. Because of their background, they're put into a, quote, safer uh, situation. So he was in Madison County Jail for 19 days in isolation. So he had he would be in his cell for 23 hours a day and he would get one day of a break or I'm sorry one hour of a break. So on that hour, he would call me and then he would call his parents and get a shower. Um, after 19 days, he was transferred to the Kilby Correctional Facility, which is like a processing center in the state for uh, when, when people go to prison. So he was bused down to Kilby, um, had to go through a, a, a various different medical things. Um, Keep in mind, he was isolated by himself for 19 days. So he had no contact with anyone other than jail staff. Um, when he got to Kilby, they placed him in isolation again for 10 days because of COVID reasons to make sure he didn't have COVID, which would have been impossible because he wasn't around the general public. But anyways, he was put into uh, that for 10 days. And then he was put into a smaller cell after that for, um, because they don't have PC down at Kilby, but during getting processed into Kilby, he was put into the same pod as real bad guys. Um, one of all that he said, the, the block that he was in, everyone in there had a murder charge. He was convicted of murder. He was the only police officer in that. So that's a violation. And one of the members that he was associated with during his time in that pod killed a cop. So by the grace of God, they didn't realize who Ben was, because if they did, I think they would have tried to kill him, especially the guy who was in there for, for killing a police officer. Um, he, so when he was at Kilby, 
Um, I wasn't notified of when he was moved, which I guess I'm not privy to that information because they don't want family or friends or whoever to try and bust him out and do a jailbreak. I understand that, but the decent thing to do would be to let me know, hey, he just got to kill me and then tell the media. Um, the media found out before I did that my husband got transferred. So I called Kilby and I, you know, I told them who I was. It was very pleasant on the phone. You know, I mean, I was obviously upset, but respect goes two ways. And so, um, I was talking to the lady and she was an absolute jerk on the phone to me, asking me for all this information to verify that I was his wife and that Ben Darby was who he was, you know, asking for his social and his birthday and his favorite color and, you know, all this stuff. And there's only one William Benjamin Darby in Alabama. You know, um, I understand the security behind that, but there's no reason for you to be a jerk about it. So um, she told me, she was like, yeah, he's here. And I said, well, can you tell me when he arrived? And she said, nope, we can't tell you that. And then hung up. And that, that ticked me off um, <laughs> just because of the attitude, like, what did I do to deserve that? You know, I'm just calling, inquiring, the well-being of my husband who's in prison. So um, from the time that he was transferred from Madison to Kilby, I didn't hear from him, from him for 56 hours. And at that point, um, he tried to call me at the same time every day, but it didn't always happen. So every time my phone rang, my heart would jump because I think, oh, it's Ben. And 99% of the time it wasn't because he was only allowed one phone call. And so when he called me, I was at work. Um, working day shift and um, I had an unknown number come call come in through my phone from Montgomery. So I was like, Oh, maybe it's him. And it was, but it had, I only had 20 seconds and then I had to put money on his phone for him to, for him to, to talk to me. Well, so we're in mid conversation and I'm trying to tell him it's about to cut off, you know, but he's trying to tell me, Hey, I'm okay. And you only have 20 seconds. And so um, the phone cut off and I get a phone tree. And while I'm trying to set up money on the account so that I can talk to him to figure out what's going on, he's trying to call me back. So I try to answer it again, thinking and hoping I'd get another 20 seconds where I could tell him, don't talk, listen to what I'm saying. And then it would click again. Well, that didn't happen. So I had to keep rejecting his call so that I could get through the phone tree to get money on his account to talk to him. And then during the phone tree, it said, we'll, we'll reconnect you with your, yeah, with the individual trying to contact you. Well, that didn't happen. So I just went off, you know, I started crying and uh, I walked into my lieutenant's office and he's like, what's wrong? And I told him everything. And he's like, just, if you need to go home or go take a break, like take your lunch, whatever, go ahead. And uh, so I had left and uh, just taken a break and Ben was able to call me back. And I was able to hear his voice, you know, hear that he was okay because it had been 56 hours from my last contact with him. Um, that's a long time when you don't know what's going on because we've never gone through this before and we don't know anyone who's gone through this before. So there's no like playbook that we can go off of, you know, this is going to happen and then they're going to do this to him. And then this person's going to contact you, you know, where I was going in blind, the both of us to this. So we didn't know what to expect. Um, so he was at Kilby for 30 days and then he got transferred up to, uh, limestone. So, and that's where he's at. Limestone is the only, uh, protective custody 
facility in the state. So he's not in with the general public. Um, he's with, you know, like I said, other other cops who are who are in there for killing their spouse, messing around with kids, rape, uh, petty theft, you know, all the charges or all the all the crimes in between. Um, but none of them are in there for a line of duty action. He's the only one in there for a line of duty action. And um, so, you know, he's in, he's in protective custody. Is it safe? No. Um, they, they pull knives and shanks off of guys in PC all the time. Um, there's people in there who have mental health issues and they try to instigate fights. Um, you know, God forbid something happens to him, whether he gets injured or, you know, at the, at obviously the worst, if his life gets taken, um, there will be a lawsuit. I mean, there's already a lawsuit, not by us, but through um, the Alabama Department of Corrections is getting investigated by the federal government for the inhumane treatment of prisoners that are in their facilities. Um, I was talking to him about a month ago and he said that one of the guards, so where, how it's set up with him, um, he has a cell, but he can leave it and go like into a day room or uh, a dining area whenever he wants, like his, his jail door, his cell door never physically locks, but there's people on the second story who are in 24 hour lockup that are of protective status, but they have to stay in lockup the whole time. Well, some guard comes in and he'll go unlock all those guys in 24 hour lockup. And then he just leaves, leaves the pod. And those people, even though they're protected, aren't supposed to be associating with the people downstairs in Ben's area. And so they're just running around rampant, yelling and causing a scene. And, you know, that puts him in a tough situation because if he has to defend himself, he'll do it. But he has to he has to realize and factor how important, how much of how much of a threat is this situation to me? Because if it is too much of a, if it's too much of a threat and he has to act on it, and then when this comes back and he gets acquitted, they can say, oh, well, now you have a prison charge and you have to stay for this. So it's, you know, he has to find that balance of trying to make sure that he's as safe as he can make himself because the prison system is utterly failing at that. Well, that's what's scary. You know, you get these people... Yeah, like like Greg's perfect example, you know, and I think he had to, he he very subtly mentioned without you know getting himself in trouble. He's like, yeah, there were times where I had to you know protect myself, but luckily it wasn't witnessed, so it didn't add to the sentence because you're trying to have this innocent um, right. you know path that you're on, and now someone pulls something on you and you have to do something to them, and now you've actually got a, a viable charge against you that totally screws up your your innocence. Um, you know, projection that you're working on. Right. So, um, as it stands, I'm allowed to see him once a month, um, for two hours. So is, is that normal for, for, for other prisoners as well? Cause it just seems to me like, I don't know if I'm just completely naive, but you know, whether it's the documentaries we see a lot on television now, or whatever, it seems like prison visitation seems a lot more frequent than has been afforded to you so far. 
So before, so April was the first time that he had visitation. Um, I was out with the resiliency project during his visitation. That trip was already planned before we were, we were notified. So, um, I obviously, I couldn't go to that because I was in California. So his, his parents went and saw him, but prior to April, if you wanted to go and see him, um, and it's a very strict list, it's me, his parents and my parents that are allowed to go see him. And if we wanted to go see him prior to that time, we would have to go through a full-blown strip search, wear a mask, and talk through plexiglass, um, which is excessive because I'm not having direct contact with you. So, And I'm not about to go get violated by having a full-blown strip search to see my husband. And he told me, he's like, this is the requirement. I do not want you to do this. But if you, it's up, it's up to you if you want to go through that. And I was like, I'm sorry, babe, but I can't. Like, I'm not, I'm not doing that. And he said, oh, good, because I don't want you to go through that. You know, like he understood how messed up that was. So um, right now you just, you go in, you have to give them your ID and they do a basic pat down search. And then um, you're allowed to go in for visitation for two hours. Yeah, two hours, can- once a month. Once a month. Yeah. Two hours, once a month, I can have direct contact with him. Um, you know, but it's very fast two hours and I'm sure every visit will be, this is everything I need to tell you that I can't. And this is what's going on that you already know about. And then here's our personal life and here's my personal life, you know, like it's going to be structured that way because I can't talk to him freely on the phone. So yeah. where where are you at now? Like, you know, what what does the appeal process look like? What are the um the the possibilities with that process? How can people listening help? You know, what what do we do from here on forward? Yeah, so we're in the appeal process. So our the court transcript from his original trial, as well as our appeal brief, which was almost 70 pages long. And then so now so the prosecutor, I mean lay this foundation. The prosecutor is no longer the Madison County individuals, uh, Robert Sarr, Tim Gann, Tim Douthat. They're no longer involved. Um, The prosecutor is the attorney general. So his office is now prosecuting the case. So when we wrote our appeal brief, the attorney general replied to our appeal brief, uh, replied to our appeal brief. And then we, uh, we replied to his document. So kind of like in closing arguments, the prosecution has the first word and the final word in the appeal process. The defendant has the first word and the final word. So all of that was just submitted to the court of criminal appeals. Uh, I think it was earlier this month. I believe it was earlier this month. Um, So they have all those documents, the court transcript and the five judges now have an undisclosed amount of time to look over the case and decide if they're going to grant us oral arguments. If they do grant us oral arguments, then our lawyers will meet with the judges and the attorney general's office, and they'll have an hour to discuss any key issues. Um, Originally in September of 2021, we had filed a motion for a new trial that included 33 reasons why he should have been given a new trial. The judge denied it. Um, so our appeal brief encompasses all 33 reasons of those, but we have to pick and choose the most important three 
and present those. So um, the three reasons in our appeal are the uh, Sixth Amendment constitutional violation that was uh, acted on against Ben. The the pertinent case law and evidence was not allowed uh, to be heard by the jury. And then if you take everything that went into his case, the great weight of that evidence would not permit a jury to convict him. So those were our three main points. The other 30 of those points are all intertwined into that appeal. Um, So the judges will hopefully give us oral arguments. Um, If they do, then they'll go have that meeting. If they don't, the judges can either deal with it um, so they could reverse the conviction and render him innocent. So we would be done. He would be um, acquitted. And then we would have to go through the process of getting his record expunged and all of that, but he would be acquitted. He would not be a felon. He would not be considered a murderer in the law enforcement uh, system. They could reverse and remand the conviction so they could reverse it and acquit him and then remand it back to trial court. So that would go back to Madison County, which we would then fight for a different venue. Um, and he would have a new trial. That is the most probable option of us, of, of where we're at right now. Our lawyers have said, it's most probable that he'll get a new trial. Um, Or they could decide to not do anything and kick it up to the state Supreme Court of Alabama. But if they do that, now we're looking at years that Ben is in prison unjustly for something he didn't do. Um, So it's hard and people ask me all the time, like, where are you at in the case? When are we gonna hear something? And I hate it because I don't know. Uh, like I said, we can f- I could find out within the next three hours or I could find out, you know, next summer. Um, it's just up to the judges as to when they want to hear the case and make a decision. But if it does get remanded back to trial, um, I've been told that there are possibilities where they may not even take it back to trial. Like it'll be it'll be pushed back to go back to trial, but the prosecutors and everything will just decide to throw it out or or just handle it outside of court. So it's hard to say what exactly is going to happen. Um, There's a lot of different offshoots from each situation that could potentially happen. We're just waiting right now to hear from the courts. And that group of judges, I'm assuming, does not include that judge that initially prosecuted? No, no. This is These are um, state judges where she was, I believe, a circuit court judge, just a local judge. These are statewide judges. Right. Now, the other thing that's always, you know, scary when you hear these cases is the, the pressure to not overturn a conviction based on knowing that there will be a financial penalty for the person who was incorrectly put in prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know exactly. That's so that's something that we've looked into, but because it's not an option for us right now, um, we haven't gone full bore into trying to figure out what our options are with that. Um, but that is something on, on the forefront of our mind. You know, um, he was unjustly convicted. He was unjustly imprisoned. And, you know, we're nine, almost nine months into it now of his life being taken away from him, from me and his family. And, you know, someone's going to take responsibility for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seems like that's the advantage of going to a, a larger, you know, organization is mm-hmm. when it's in the city or the county. Well, 
they've got a vested interest to not accepting responsibility. Therefore, they don't have to pay anything. Right. So when you remove it from that, hopefully there'll be a, a, a more neutrally minded group of people that will remove that from the equation and actually look at the facts themselves. Right, right. So um, right now we are, you know, police officers don't make a lot of money. And I, we realize that when we, you know, when you sign up for the job, if you're in it for the right reason, it doesn't matter what you what you get paid. Um, but legal fees are very expensive. Uh, we're, we're six figures into his defense right now for the appeal. So um, we have set up a donation through Fund the First. Uh, they're an organization um, that we have set up a, a donation link that's on our website. Or, so you can either go to our website or go to Fund the First website and search uh, Stand with Darby. And if people would like to help out with legal fees, um, every dollar that is donated to um, any fundraiser platform that we have or any uh, any type of fundraiser goes directly to him. I do not benefit off of, I mean, I benefit off of it helping me pay with legal fees, but it doesn't benefit my day-to-day -day life. You know, I don't go on vacations and trips and buy clothes and do whatever with that money. It strictly goes to Ben's legal fees. Um, you know, uh, the resiliency project has been a very big help to us in advocating for us with, uh, helping me with social media, um, and getting our story out that way. Um, and then, you know, being able to talk on your show and talk with, uh, Andy Stumpf and then, uh, the 10, eight memes podcast and the police applicant podcast, just getting our story out on different platforms. You know, if people have, have a, a way for us to do that, to help support us in advocacy, uh, that would be greatly appreciated because because of the gag order, no one knows about, no one knows the true story of what happened to Ben Darby. And, you know, I'm doing my best to do that right now with the opportunities that I have. Um, we do have a website. It's www.standwithdarby.com. It has every podcast that I've, that I've been on is on there. It has Everything you want to know about Ben Darby and his case is on there. Um, his appeal brief, the reply by the state, by the state, our reply, um, a letter that the attorney general wrote on a shooting that happened in 2018, where he said that he couldn't ethically charge the officer because of case law, the same case law that we used in defense that was not allowed to be brought up to the jury. Um, there's a little part in there about Ben, um, what really happened that day, which is basically what I talk about on all these podcasts, but you know, it's there in written form as well. Um, there's a media kit on there. If the media has questions, um, you know, they have yet to reach, reach out to me because they don't want to hear from, from the wife of, of Ben Darby. But uh, if any media people are listening to this, there's a media kit. Uh, you can contact me that way. Um, but just the support, the support from the beginning has been there, but it's only grown now that I've been able to come out and uh, tell our story. And I just, you know, to everyone who, who has supported us from the beginning and who has continued to support us through donations, um, I wouldn't be able to do this without their support and their help. And people like you having me on your show, your podcast to help get the story out. Uh, it's just, it's monumental in getting, getting the truth out and without it, you know, I would be more behind the eight ball than what I already am. 
Well, it's just it's so unacceptable that you've had to be quiet for, you know, three plus years and not be able to tell anyone about this because, I mean, that just seems in itself completely unethical and I mean, really what should be illegal. If something has happened and someone's accused in a country where we're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty, right. and yet you re- remove the ability to discuss or publicize what's going on with your loved one, then that is horrendous. So the next best thing, because we can't turn back time, is for everyone to listen to these podcasts and go to the websites and donate um, and, you know, f- push it now. I mean, you know, the, the, the the best time would have been 2018. The second best time is today. Right. So, um, you know, there's a lot of things that people don't know, and that's why I'm trying to get, get the word out. Um, one thing I forgot to mention, the ever since Ben, from Ben shooting, there was, I think, four or five officer-involved shootings um, between his and his trial date. And one of them was very similar in the fact it was a suicidal subject who had a gun in her waistband, in her uh, pocket and the officers um, made contact with her at the door. They didn't go inside. They, they knocked on the door and had her step out and they could see the gun in her pocket. And they said, put your hands up, keep your hands up. And she had reached for the gun. And before she could even get her hand on it, they shot her. Um, those guys aren't in prison. I'm glad they're not. So don't, don't misconstrue what I'm saying here. I'm glad they're not because it was justified use of force, but the gun was never pointed at them. The gun was, was being turned on Ben, but he's in prison for it. Um, and that discrepancy between the DA in those cases, you know, what do you have against Ben Darby? Um, and I, I truly believe it goes back to political ties and bad blood. Um, you can't, you can't say that what Ben did and what those officers did that day, that they're, Yes, they're different, but they're both justified, you know? So just trying to get get these little things out to let people know what truly happened. And, you know, just the support that I've seen um, with uh, Andy's, Andy's podcast, um, so many people have donated and it's been, been extremely helpful um, with, with me trying to make financial decisions with his legal fees. Um, you know, and to everyone, to everyone out there, truly, thank you. Um, when I was able to tell Ben how much we've been able to donate and the support and everything, he was just blown away. Um, because people are understanding this isn't just a Ben Darby issue. This is a law enforcement issue that's going to potentially affect officers nationwide. You know, it's affecting officers in Alabama right now. Um, but there's going to be case law, you know, Darby versus, or Alabama versus Darby or, Parker versus Darby will be civil case law, but there's going to be case law that comes to this. And it's not a matter of, you know, because Ben, his sentence is 25 years. Um, it's not a matter of if, if he's going to come home, it's a matter of when. And I truly believe he's going to come home before that time period. Um, and as his wife, it's my duty to help speed that up, speed that process up as much as I can. You know, again, I still work full time as a police officer at my department. And then I advocate for him, you know, like right now, um, I got off shift at seven, seven thirty this morning. I came home, took a nap for a couple hours and then uh, got on here with you. And I don't have an off day, you know, I work and then I work for Ben Darby and I'll do it until he comes home because he deserves that. He's not a murderer. And people are finally starting to realize that. 
Well, I mean, uh, I want to say thank you so much because I know what it's like working nights and for you to come home, sleep for two hours and then do a three-hour podcast because of, you know, your burning love for your husband. Um, you know, it, it's admirable. And to have a couple, you know, it's very rare that you have, you know, law enforcement couples. So your entire family is out there sacrificing your time and, and risking your lives for complete strangers. And I think that an important note when we were talking before that kind of popped in my head, if Jeff Parker had been the hostage in a hostage situation and Ben had shot the hostage taker, he would have sh- saved Jeff's life. Mm-hmm. But Jeff created an environment that gave Ben no choice, you know, and, and it's just that he could easily have been the someone, you know, who he saved through his actions. He just sadly, whatever happened on, on his life path put him to that point where he created that situation. And, and when we look at the, the, the history, he was either going to take his own life or he was going to wait for someone else to take his life mm-hmm. or he was going to take someone else's life. But it's, you know, sadly, that environment he created you know, someone was not walking out of that house. So when you equate that, obviously you're going to say, well, if you're going to add that all together, then sadly the person who initiated that is the one that shouldn't walk out of the house. And that's Mm -hmm. exactly what happened as per protocol, despite the people that he was on scene with that actually made that scene a lot harder. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to tell Ben's story. Um, I wish I'd known about it three years ago. We could be three years deep in several interviews by now. Um, But I hope that, you know, this platform is one of many where people listening not only go, wow, I'm moved by that and donate, but also share this and get it to the point where so many people know about Ben's story that there's the same pressure as some of the, you know, the, the Navy SEALs and people that we've seen where even presidents step in, you know. Now, do I think that our current one is, is super pro cop? I don't think so. And I don't like left or right. I can't stand either of them, to be honest. But Hopefully enough people with enough power will step up and, you know, we as a nation can demand that we protect the people that leave their families to go serve complete strangers. Right. To protect strangers. Exactly. Um, yeah. We're, you know, anyone with an advocacy um, effort that would be willing to help us uh, get his story out because no one knows, you know, um, it's just greatly appreciated. And again, I just want to say thank you for the opportunity to to tell our story. Um, It's not an easy one, but I would do it every day to make sure that he came home.